and welcome to a live episode of Deprogram with Carrie Smith. If it's your first time here, if the algorithm brought you here, this is actually a new channel. So please hit like and subscribe. Um, we also have book club coming up soon. If you guys want more info, you can um, hit us up in the comments and we'll give you the links that you need. I'm not going to keep my guest waiting too long. I'm very excited. Today, I'm welcoming Nick Riceda. Hello, Nick. Hi. Hi. I have heard that you are the host of the most popular legal channel on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the most popular good one. <laughs> <laughs> I've been watching some of your uh, your Johnny Depp Amber Heard coverage, and it's fascinating. Would would you, for anybody who may not be, I, I bet there's a lot of people here today who are familiar with you. But for anybody who's not, would you mind telling us how you got, how you came to find yourself um, on YouTube covering trials? Uh, yeah, well, it, it's kind of a, there's a, it's a two-part story. First, there's how I came to be on YouTube, um, which I could tell. And then there's how I started covering trials, which, which is just a little bit separate. But tell uh, me how you came to be on YouTube first. Okay, well. Um, so I'm a, I'm a lawyer, I guess, sort of, um, <laughs> and, uh, in a small town and I just, uh, you know, I have, uh, a wife and a boatload of kids and very happy with all of that. But, uh, I was, I was, you know, being my lawyer self, but I was a friend of, uh, or a friend fan of a show called the biggest problem in the universe which was a podcast between two, two internet satirists. Well, actually, one internet satirist and one internet idiot, um, Maddox and Dick Masterson, although I guess switch those respectively. Uh, okay. Dick has been a longtime satirist. He's the author of a book called Men Are Better Than Women and um, famously went on the Dr. Phil show as a professional chauvinist. Uh, and, and kind of trolled the Dr. Phil show live and went to the, like the house for a week, you know, and it was, uh, it was what like house? his comedy bit, the Dr. Phil house they used to have where it was like a therapy house where they would bring in people and they would live there in this. It's, it's actually just a studio, but they would live there in the studio for a week and, uh, they would do like daily sessions with Dr. Phil and, uh, and, and they'd have to live with people that hated them like so he got put in the room with a a, whim, a woman who hated men kind of thing oh, wow and they had to like uh they didn't know he was trolling no <laughs> 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 that's what made it great is uh they didn't know that he's he's just playing this extreme character and um so they went through this whole thing but that was like uh so he had that in the, this book and uh then he starts a show with maddox maddox is a weirdo who had a uh, YouTube channel called the the biggest uh, or the was it the best page in the universe? I guess that was also his web page, okay. the best page in the universe. And he would just do satire bits. We all thought it was satire. It turns out it was his real thoughts, which made it kind of funnier later. That name um, sounds familiar. Did he also do a lot of like fake Craigslist ads where he was selling um, dis handguns disguised as like tissue boxes and stuff? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> he might have. Who knows? <laughs> um, he's a he's an odd duck. But it, it, that, that's this is way too much background. Long story short, they had a podcast called "The Biggest Problem in the Universe." It was a very good podcast, uh, and it was it went on for about two years, and then they had a bad breakup. 
and no one really knew why. So they each started their own show and uh, Dick started talking about what went wrong with the show. And then Maddox ended up suing Dick for um, somewhere between 20 and $400 million. It was hard wow. to tell because the lawsuit was very poorly written, but everybody's freaking out over this lawsuit. And, uh, and I was in the Facebook group, the Facebook fan group for it. And I, was sitting on the couch with my wife. We were watching some TV show that I didn't really care about at the time. So I uh, pulled up the documents and started reading them. And I'm like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever read. Like, this is terrible. So I decided to drink whiskey uh, and read the lawsuit and explain to people because they're like freaking out a little yeah. bit that this this thing, it's, it's official now. There's a lawsuit. And so I just wanted to kind of break down for people what it was, but I was too stupid to figure out how to upload a long video to Facebook. So okay. I had to upload it to YouTube and then link it to Facebook. I was like, Oh, okay, this will be fine. And then a whole bunch of people watch this thing and they're like, you need to do this all the time. Cause I got absolutely trashed <laughs> reading this document because <laughs> I had to do two takes because I went to encyclopedia dramatica and it shut down my computer in the middle of recording, which was because of all the viruses. Oh, wow. <laughs> so then I had to do it all over again. And I did it again at the end of that. It was a mess. It was just a, it was a disaster. So how long ago was that when you started? Uh, that would have been four years ago, uh, last November. So just over four years ago. Okay. And then I know I first heard of you, uh, people were talking about your coverage of the Rittenhouse trial. Yeah. So then that was, that was kind of, uh, another, I don't know, it, a weird happenstance. Um, I was originally going to cover the, the Derek Chauvin trial in the same way. I wanted to live stream the whole thing. Uh, Derek Chauvin's the Minneapolis police officer who uh, was convicted for murdering George Floyd. Um, but the day that, that trial started, I was uh, on my way down to Florida. So that didn't work. And then I was down in Florida the whole trial, pretty much. And so I, I wasn't able to do the coverage that I wanted to. But uh, with Rittenhouse, I said, you know, I'm going to take the entire the entire time and I'm going to watch every second of this stupid trial. <laughs> and so I did, uh, cause mainly cause I wanted to watch it, but also, um, I'd been following the case since it happened. I had, uh, personally made the determination that he was likely not guilty because of self-defense. Uh, and, and it was merely a matter of if a jury would agree with that. Cause I think by the law, um, that was the correct answer. And so I, I was very anxious to, to get to the outcome. And then that just blew up as it went. And right. it was supposed to really be just me or maybe me and one other attorney um, watching it at a time. Uh, the first couple shows, I have one guest. And then uh, I had two guests on Legal Bites and Legal Mindset um, when when uh, Viva clipped out a portion of, of the show and shared it on Twitter. And then that's when it blew up, right? Mm -hmm. Uh uh, there, that clip had like 4 million views on Twitter. And then suddenly my live streams just went straight through the roof. It was, it was crazy. And what you're doing, it's kind of unusual because you cover the whole courtroom. Like you'll, you'll sit there streaming the whole thing and adding commentary. So sometimes it's like a seven hour stream or something yeah. really long. 
and it's full of people though. There's uh, the last one I checked in on uh, one of your Johnny Depp trial once, and there are like 15,000 people there or something watching this with you. Why do you think people are so fascinated by the courtroom? Um, I, I think, well, there, there's a couple different pieces to it, but really it comes down to um, a mix of reality TV right? The drama is there. The drama is real. It's not manufactured. And it is, um, you know, it's, it's some of the worst moments of people's lives, which it's kind of horrid to sensationalize that. But at the same time, like that's what, you know, that's where life gets really, really terrifying, right? Is, yes. is at these, either the, the worst moments or the best moments is what we want to see. And that's what we try and simulate with movies all the time. This isn't simulated. You know, this is for, for Johnny Depp, this is his entire career and legacy. I mean, he will either be forever, and for many people, of course, he'll forever be labeled an abuser. Um, but but if he's not an abuser, then he desperately wants to not be labeled an abuser. He wants to, if he tried his whole life, like imagine your mother was such a horrific monster to you your father was uh abusive in a different way and his passivity and in, in letting this stuff happen to you and occasionally physically abusive as well but mostly in just letting his mother be terrifying and then just leaving and you know in the middle of his in the middle of his teenage years just leaving him to her and so you spend your whole life trying to be anything but but that abuser and yeah. then someone and again this is this is assuming that he's not i mean maybe he is but someone comes along and turns that key falsely on you and so yes. forever you will be them with spending your whole life trying not to be yeah and i think what happens i'll just offer my opinion on it i like you said who knows i can only say speculate what my gut says right but but I think it makes sense that he found someone with um, controlling, abusive, cluster mm -hmm. B type of characteristics, because those people, I think they have a, they're kind of like predators in a way, and they have an ability to sniff out that vulnerability or that, that, that weakness in a person, the same way groomers do with kids, you know, they'll target 100%. kids who've already been abused. And so it, my take on the situation is, um, she's in the, she's in the wrong, but you know, who am I, who am I to say? <laughs> well, that's, that's <laughs> and I think that's, uh, part of the, the rest of it, right? So there's, there's a the component of this is reality. Then there's the, the component of, as you're watching this unfold, there's mystery to it because you'll, all you've got is whatever the best evidence they can give is and in in many many cases so much boils down to just do you believe person a or person b and so you get to call the shot but you get to call the shot with as much information as anyone will ever have that's i think another reason why people watch and then the final piece is just access to this sort of uh wonderland that is court right mm -hmm. if you go to court personally you hate everything uh, it doesn't matter. Even if you win, it's long, yeah. extensive, horrible process. It's brutal to you. Emotional. And this, yeah. And this gives you just a peek into there. Uh, you get to look at it from the hill, right? Looking down on the town that's on fire. 
And, uh, and that's, that's like a safe distance, but you get to experience it. And so I think those things come together and, and just people are just enthralled by it. And then when you, when you look at like what I do on top of that, cause I mean, you can do, you can do all of those things with, uh, you know, like law and crime or court TV and just watch their bare coverage. But when you do what I do, I'm, I'm bringing in other people as experts on litigation and uh, and different criminal element or criminal and civil elements, and and you get you get a glimpse of that like six figure education that no one wants to spend the money or time to do, and and shouldn't by the way. I'm not I'm not <laughs> elevating that education in any way. Believe me, I've tons of criticisms of it, but most people have too much going on to you know, have time or desire to do that. But this brings you to uh, some people with that education expertise and they get to, they get to kind of help you along through the story. It's like a narrator. Do you know your, uh, I'm just curious, your breakdown of viewers, is it mostly men or women who are, who are watching your, all the court footage with you or do you have any idea? Um, well, I know, the uh, overall breakdown of my channel, I can check the most recent stream real quick and, and just kind of see because I'm asking uh, because I tend, I think I want to get your opinion about this, but when it comes to maybe not courtroom uh, drama, like live courtroom stuff, but true crime, it seems to me that it's more women who are interested in oh, true yeah. crime. And, and I've, I have some opinions on why that is. Um, and I wonder what you thought about that. And then I just, I was curious about, who's watching your channel? Is it a lot of women? Yeah, I would. Um, it's certainly more women than normally watch my channel. Um, let's see on the, uh, I, I can't check the most recent one, but the previous one, it's 26.8% female. Oh, um, wow. That's interesting. Which is really, really high for, uh, for a channel like mine. One, because I have uh, lots of edgy jokes and two, because I, <laughs> I, I cover subjects that are not really in the, I guess the, my, like my nighttime show is completely different. And I cover subjects that, um, you know, political subjects and things like that, that tend to skew heavier towards men on YouTube. And so before doing trial coverage, uh, my female viewership was maybe six to 10%. And uh, when the trial coverage starts up, every time you can you can see the the demographic shift pretty pretty intensely towards women, uh, and you can also notice it in the chat. Uh, lots lots more women watch those shows than than normal, which which I think it has a lot to do with that true crime element. I just had to put this up. I saw this scroll by. <laughs> <laughs> that's the D most accurate comment possible <laughs> degenerates watch his channel <laughs> um why do you think that is i know what i i know what i think but why, why do you think women more more so than men are interested in and follow true crime there's so many true crime shows that are out now um they're making two different series about this texas axe murder that happened um they're filming one of them in my little town uh, those are coming out soon. This this murder from the nineteen eighties. Uh, There's all the the shows about like the Tinder swindler, um, mm -hmm. Theranos, uh, Elizabeth Holmes, like these sort of yeah. dis disordered personality types who take advantage of people. Why why do you think that that's more appealing on average to women? Um, well, I think I think it follows a general trend of reality TV 
being um, what I would consider more more appealing to women in general. Um, I'm not a hundred percent sure why, but I I think it's just I don't know if it's a lot of uh, women who are, and, and I don't mean this in any way, but but housewives, right? So I, I think they are in their homes a lot, dealing with children, dealing with a, a husband who comes home or whatever. They're, they're dealing with that aspect of life. And then there's this other that they get to, it, it takes them out of the home quite mm-hmm. a bit. And I, I think that's a part of it. Uh, the other part of it is I, I think women, um, it, it flexes the empathy muscle a little bit for them and uh, they get to... Um, you know, it's, it's that helper caregiver sort of mentality that comes through, um, this thing they want to, I think they want to help, uh, the victims. I think they want to help the perpetrator. Uh, and, and I think that that gets to manifest and synergize online with the ability to actually help in the, the live true crime stuff. Like when you, uh, if you remember the Sophie long case out of Texas, the little girl, uh, and the dad said, uh, he made a video of, of the girl, um, having to go back to her mother and she's like crying and screaming cause they were divorced. I don't know. And, this uh, okay. So, uh, yeah, this, this little girl's like nine years old and, um, the, this video went viral online because she was supposed to go back to her mom for, you know, back to her mom's house and she's screaming and crying, just bloody murder uh, that, that her mom, uh, lets other lets her boyfriend touch her and all this stuff it was very heartbreaking to watch and so um this became this big thing and this custody battle became live suddenly right for for all of these people and um when that happened people were able to actually participate they could investigate the mom they could investigate the boyfriend and talk about it in communities and feel like they were contributing to yes. this custody battle. So it became participatory. And I think, I think that stuff uh, hits just a lot of the inclinations that, that women tend to have traditionally. And again, it's that caregiver um, nurturer sort of uh, empathetic role, in my opinion. Yeah. I, I don't yeah. know. I'm not a biologist though. I'm not, <laughs> what is a woman? <laughs> yeah. What are no words? Idea. What are words? How are we even talking? Uh, I think, I think some of it also is, I was just doing, um, a video with my friend about horror movies, zombie movies. And we read these studies that said that people like watching horror movies, the people who enjoy them anyway, because they like exercising the sort of, uh, fear of the worst case scenario Mm -hmm. in a safe way, almost the way that people exercise what made me think of the way people exercise tribalism in sports. It's sort of a, as a safe way to be tribalistic and not actually kill the other tribe, you know, you, and, right. and so I think that horror movies do that. And probably with, with women, it's more of like, here, let me watch the worst case scenarios of things that could happen to me. So I, I experience it and experience that fear. And then if they catch the person at the end, then it's resolved and it's like a safe way to get out those fears. Maybe. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense too. It's uh, it's, it is safe but it's, it's exploring the unsafe. Mm. Um, and, and the, with some of the true crime stuff, it's like, <laughs> I'm always surprised is, uh, like some of those shows, they get into some of the most horrific and brutal crimes possible. And I'm like, 
man, like, uh, I know tons of women who would, who would never watch this movie, but man, will they listen to this podcast? You know, it's, yeah. it's like, it's, it'd be too brutal, but they'll, they'll listen. Dear John, <laughs> did you listen to that one? I did. No, uh, no. Yeah. And they ended up making a series out of it, but the podcast was great. Uh, so what, what do you think about, so as you're talking about people tuning in for Rittenhouse and Johnny Depp and stuff, uh, I just recently, speaking of true crime, I just recently watched this interview with OJ Simpson that it came out a few years ago, but it was originally recorded when his book came out, If I Did It. Yeah. And then they held it, they sat on it and didn't put it out. And so a different news organization got hold of it somehow, released it a couple of years ago. It's on YouTube. People can watch it. It's basically, it's crazy. It's like watching a confession. Um, yeah. And so I was, I've been thinking about that trial and how it was televised and how that played mm -hmm. a role in it. Do you think that, do you think that open courtrooms, like with the cameras there and stuff, do you think that that serves the interests of justice or do you have an opinion on that? Does it, does it help? Yes. Hurt? Uh, I think well, here's where I go with it. We, we'll go way back. Um, when we separated from England, one of the big complaints that we had uh, or that the, the founders had was uh, the, the king had a special court called the Star Chamber. And in the Star Chamber, you did not have uh, representation. Uh, there was no transparency. People would go into the Star, uh, the Star Chamber. I think it's called the Star Chamber, the Star Court, one of those two. But the, they would go into the star chamber. They would be convicted at a shocking rate and, uh, and no one would ever be the wiser. And they didn't have rights in the star, star chamber. You didn't have uh, the ability to confront your accuser because your accuser was wow. the king. So you couldn't do anything about it. So when we got here. Uh, court was actually held uh, in the open in, in, in the courtyard. Uh, and, and we would have judges that traveled a circuit, which is why we had circuit courts and they would, you know, go on a horse and buggy from town to town. And they would, uh, hear all of the trials in that town that had been building up and then they'd move on and go to the next town. And it was held out in the open. There wasn't a, a courthouse for many of these cities, uh, and until much later. And the reason was they wanted people out to they wanted the public to witness what was going on because it was a check on the government. It was a check to, to make sure that rights were being enforced because you'd have the masses there. And if if injustice were carried out, uh, you know, the mob would be able to bring their uh, grievances against the government. If they thought that someone was being punished by by tyranny, they could right. actually rebel in in many ways or or at least gather in mass and and this is at a time when our country was a lot different tarring and feathering was a real thing politicians feared the public uh duels happened where politicians were shot <laughs> things like that um so you you had this direct ability uh and and interactivity and then as time went on we kind of put the court away and we started developing rules on who could be in the court and how you could watch it and who could participate. And we have limits on numbers. And then TV cameras come out and uh, and become more popular. And, and they then most importantly, they become smaller. And that um, it has a, a double edged sort of focus to it, because it, sure, it allows things like O.J. Simpson to be sensationalized mm -hmm. um, and. 
that skews towards maybe, maybe a guilty man walked free that day. But on the other hand, uh, it, it almost, uh, you've seen the movie, the fugitive with Harrison Ford. Yes. Okay. That's based on a court case. I don't remember the name, but basically same, same idea. This doctor's wife gets killed and the media was so insistent that he was guilty. I mean, they were running stories about it and uh, they, that they actually created a demand for mob justice through wow. the courts and the courts complied, right? The prosecutor files charges uh, and then they, they get so many cameras in the courtroom that the lawyers are literally like stepping over news people on the floor as they're doing their arguments. They're having to get around cameras and they have to stop the court for all this stuff. This guy eventually gets convicted because the media had created such uh, an intense hatred of him. But that's when the, um, you know, the, the Supreme court came in and, and basically said that, you know, if there's too much media influence, it can actually be prejudicial. And, and they found they uh, reversed his conviction after several years. Wow. Um, because of that, but now we have some, some level of balance and we're figuring it out, but it, it, it does, uh, all this sensationalism is part of it, but really access to the courtroom, I think is one of the most critical elements of, uh, a participatory Republic like we have, because you have these fourth, fifth, sixth amendment criminal procedure rights. And if they're not followed and you can't, and no one can see it. What can you do? I mean, who right. can you believe if the entire court system is against you, but you can't show anybody ever? So what I think we should have them in every single courtroom for every single case. Well, what you're describing, the you call it a star court or the star chamber? Star chamber, yeah. Um, that makes me think of the Title IX campus cases, you know, in universities yes. where a lot of times these guys who are accused, it's mostly men accused of sexual mm -hmm. harassment, are not allowed to know who their accuser is sometimes. They're not allowed to hear the accuser's testimony. Um, traumatizing for the and, accuser. Yeah. <laughs> and they're and they're treated as guilty before they get a hearing. Many times they're suspended from being able to attend the university. And I didn't start reading about those until a couple of years ago. And it's just it's it's crazy how how much secrecy shrouds that process on universities, campuses. Yeah. But, and it, it, there's so there's two examples of of basically the star chamber and that that's one of them. The Title IX process is uh, it's an embarrassment to justice. It's abysmal. You you don't get to know your accuser. You don't get to confront them uh, because it'd be too traumatizing. Like you said, you you are often suspended. So people who are brought in it wit as witnesses, uh, they get this impression that you're bad automatically. Cause you're not just accused, like you're also, and I think the accusatory process in criminal cases is similar, but not as bad as title nine. But once you're, you know, you're accused and discipline is enforced upon you ahead of time. And then you have to fight against that. But that, that prejudice is the whole process. The other, the other element, uh, the other aspect of our system that looks a lot like that is um, the FISA the FISA court, the Foreign Intelligence Surveza Act, Surveillance uh, Act court, um, which became popular after the revelations of Edward Snowden. And the FISA court is mainly just a warrant process um, for, for certain wiretaps. Um, but uh, they have a, it's like a 90, 
9.6% approval rate because uh, only the to, government. You mean to, to get to, wiretaps on people? Yeah. Okay. Uh, because <laughs> only a government lawyer gets to argue the case. So there's only the government lawyer goes in to the court and then uh, they get to argue why the wiretap is valid and they have a duty to argue why the wiretap would be invalid. But shockingly, it's just <laughs> a little weaker. Um, and the other party, uh, you know, the wiretapped party or even like third parties that might be involved, like, for example, Verizon, if it's a Verizon phone or Internet or, or whatever they're tapping, they're not even allowed to know that this is going on and to offer their input on the wow. process. And then the, the rulings up until Snowden were actually secret. And these had binding Supreme Court level precedent to them. So they were making rulings that would be just the same as if they went to the Supreme Court in effect, but no one could know what they were. You couldn't even read them. So then you might have a, a case against you outside of the FISA court uh, and they would use the government has access to these rulings, but they would use them as authority against you. And your lawyers never even seen the case because it's classified. And so that was this system. And and yeah, shockingly, like the it, it was a rubber stamp effectively. And the statistics on it are mind boggling. And remembering what it is, it's this is permission to put a wiretap on a United States citizen for uh, suspected ties to some sort of foreign communication. Now, at the time, that was so broad that it was, uh, at the time before Snowden mentioned it, um, that it, they went three steps out on your, your, you had to have a tie to a suspected um, adversarial foreign agent. So, for so example, if I know you, I know you, you know, yep. person B who knows. Person I know my B. constitutional law professor who was uh, a general counsel for the CIA and an expert on international um, drone strikes. OK. And then he knows someone in Saudi Arabia. Right. Who uh, works with. Uh, who works with uh, their like government. And so now we're three steps to someone who might have a tie to Al Qaeda. Right. So you they could you are. me. Yes. <laughs> And okay. that that came out to be something. It's like ninety six percent of Americans were three yeah, steps from Al Qaeda. Haven't uh, they played the Kevin Bacon game? It's not that right. hard. Like, um, can you? I don't know as much about this as I should. I assume. Did, how did this happen? Was it the Patriot Act? Uh, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act is a little older than the Patriot Act. It was um, beefed up during the Patriot Act, but it was mostly beefed up because it, it defined, um, uh, oh, the, the other good part is there, you know, there's like, uh, there's either nine or 12 judges on it and they're, they were confidential. You couldn't, you couldn't even know who was, who were the judges on this court. Um, but, uh, it was, it was beefed up by the Patriot Act be, and the authorized use of military force in, um, Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, because it just expanded the the enemies list, right? So it it broadened it, and then they started employing it very very heavily. And as wire surveillance got easier and easier, uh, and people became more and more connected, it it just blew up. But the government was happy with that. They you know it, it made their jobs so much simpler. Um, they have since walked that back to two steps, which only covers like sixty five percent of Americans. <laughs> so. Great. 
So who, what's the oversight for this, the FISA court? Like, is there any, how, who walked um, it back two steps to two steps? Uh, they, well, they walked it back because, and, and this is where Snowden doesn't get enough credit. I know there are probably people in the chat. There's always some people who think that he is uh, a villain. Um, I, I disagree. I think he's uh, one of the, one of the greatest assets to freedom and transparency that we've, that we've had. Uh, I, I can't name someone else in, in the modern era who would have had any similar type of impact. Um, but that being said, uh, after his exposure, the foreign intelligence surveillance court decided that, well, its decisions were in the public interest because the public was now clearly interested in them, uh, because they're, you know, they were, they got leaked. Some of these decisions got leaked to the public and, and people were like reading them and eating them up and lawyers were commenting on them and making a big stir about how, how just how crazy this thing was. And, uh, and it's a secret court. And so they, they decided that now that there was sufficient public interest, they could publish some of their uh, opinions. It's like they, it, there already was, you jackholes. Um, that, was, uh, that was part of it. And then, yeah, the, the policy shift on moving down to like, um, you know, once the statistics came out that this covered almost every American, the only people it didn't cover were like, you live in, you're an Amish, right? And you just don't have you the You don't internet. have it. Yeah. <laughs> Or, or you live like in rural Appalachia and you're too poor to have any sort of internet access at all. So that, that was, those were, that was it. And so once that comes out and they're like, oh yeah, I guess this is kind of bad. And this was a process, a domino process that Snowden started because he's sitting there, uh, he does this and they, you know, they call him a traitor or whatever. Everything he released has been linked to uh, government overreach. Uh, to the point where the Supreme Court uh, or an appeals court, I think a couple years ago, um, found that the government acted unconstitutionally with wiretaps and how it was implementing its uh, surveillance programs and stuff like that on on American citizens. He was vindicated in all of it, but he was so uh, propagandized and lambasted by the, um, you know, by the media by the government and and a bunch of people still believe well he should have just taken it to his superior uh you know to his superiors like gone up oh. the chain of command what? and it's like <laughs> it, it, and they they the main thing that makes people really mad is that he really he gave a whole bunch of documents to glenn greenwald uh we haven't seen anywhere near what was actually um what, what he obtained um because they they went through it very intentionally. Glenn Greenwald and, and some female reporter I, or journalist, I don't remember her name. Um, and they tried to be very careful. Uh, but some of the stuff got released, uh, had some information about uh, military force locations or something. And so people said that this put American soldiers in danger. I'm not so sure that any actual like deaths or anything can be linked specifically to those releases but that was the the government vilification of snowden was that he released a bunch of classified stuff that put u.s troops in danger and and uh that was the well, narrative that they ran well with. they have to they have to smear him you have like, to you know, yeah because they, they couldn't kill him flip it yeah once once he got out uh of the country you can't kill him as easy so you have to smear him forever 
Uh, he can't, he has to be PNG. And I think, I think that's actually one of the biggest mistakes of the past several presidential administrations. Trump's uh, especially was not um, offering him a pardon and bringing him uh, and bringing him home. By the way, presidents can pardon alleged treason. Um, so you, you could do that, but uh, they should have done that. But the, the offers were always like, well, you'll only spend life in prison. <laughs> so uh, well, they, they should have why, brought him back, in my opinion. Why do you think Trump didn't do that? Uh, because Trump is a law and order president who was uh, military strength oriented and that ha- can have the appearance of weakness. Um, right. Because uh, he did he did violate the law. He 100 percent broke the law uh, in in doing it but when governments make laws to protect themselves from unlawful activity i find that to be a, a null and void law personally i don't think that should think be moral yeah <laughs> i agree but i but trump um you know he wanted to be he he always projected himself as strong strong on uh, national security strong on border security and if the perception is that edward snowden was uh, a had posed a threat to national security and border security um, and that he gave away, uh, you know, he, he exposed U S assets to risk. Then, you know, that's kind of goes in with his character. I just think uh, if he had had the right advisors there that maybe they could have sold him on the idea. And I think he would have, I think he would have brought a lot more, uh, a lot more libertarian minded and freedom people into the Republican party. Uh, I don't know that it would have had any impact, but I just think there's a, there's a bunch of people that could have brought in and said, Hey, there are people who do care about this government transparency thing that yes. I care about. Yeah. I want to, if you don't mind, I'm just going to read a couple of super chats. I don't want to get too of far course. behind. There's a couple of questions for you. Um, Church of failure says for Nick as Richard's, why do you diss shyster lawyer on your stream? Much love and great interview. I don't get that one. He wants me to read this as Mark Richards, the attorney for Kyle Rittenhouse. Oh, okay. So he wants me to say, um, why do you, uh, you diss shyster lawyer on your stream? <laughs> that's, that's what he wanted me to, to do. Uh, nice. Yeah. Nice. Thank you, Church yeah. of Failure. Pirate, I'll actually, I, I saw you were trying to pull up the chats. I'll let you do it. Thank you. Doug Murray. Thanks, Doug. Says, Carrie, wonderful channel. Found you through Chrissy. Found her through Nick. Found him through Kyle. Found him through Antifa and BLM. <laughs> 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 thanks, Antifa. Hopefully, R- Rackets brought along his sidekick, Mr. Smee, the best pirate I've ever seen. Thank you, sir. Uh, Ian, damn it, Nick, you got me something for Carrie now. I am digging the hats. Uh, thanks. I get so many people are like, take the hat off. I'm like, I can wear what I want. Uh, yes. <laughs> Nick, you need to wear hats, especially on that <laughs> uncut hair. <laughs> yes, I I need to go in for my hair circumcision very soon, uh, as soon do as you, possible. Do you ever wear hats? No. Oh, I'm a big fan of, uh, actually, Pirate Tomsky sent me a flat cap. I just like, I like I like the forties and fifties style and men wore a lot of different kinds of hats back then women too. And anyway, I'm an advocate. I, I, I like hats on women. I love uh, buying my wife hats and I think she's super cute in them, uh, but she, she kind of hates them. So oh. <laughs> like, <"Wear a> hat. <laughs> <laughs> um, Oh fuck says Carrie, 
balls or the lack thereof and why does the guest <laughs> prefer the former p.s if amber heard is drugs incarnate then depp indeed abused her you know this degeneracy is supposed to remain on my channel you're not supposed to do this guys you're not supposed to bring this uh, like a disease around the internet i don't even get it so i get the last sentence but i mean i can explain it but i tried i try to save people in their their beautiful ignorance well the, la the last sentence uh one of the things i heard was that he had a very high um bi monthly bill that he paid for his doctor and his prescription meds and it, it it was a really high figure it was it was very sad but one of the recordings that she made that i listened to online she was she was engaging in darvo she was denying and reversing victim order Mm -hmm. um accusing him of things while she was behaving in the very way she was accusing him of being and then she drugged him like mid-recording did you hear that one she took i a, haven't heard that one yet yeah she took a she's like while she's talking to him and accusing him of all this stuff and yelling at him she then you can hear her open a pill bottle and she's like you sound like you need a xanax and gives him one <laughs> what, a, and, what a pile of garbage yeah, so gross <laughs> So gross. Oh. Um, Ian, so forth. Hey, guy. He said, hi, Carrie. Nick, in Depp versus Heard, is the infamous bed poop really that detrimental to Amber's case? I guess what I'm asking is, who does number two work for? <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> That's an Austin Powers reference, right? I guess, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Uh, Stetson's Gold says, Nick, you legend. Missed your stream today, so worked out to death metal instead. Strangely reminded me of Amber Turd. Hashtag me too. <laughs> Hello, sir. Um, gosh, there's more. Oh, hey, little ragamuffin. Do you know this lady? Uh, no, I don't. I don't think so. She's excellent. She was um, involved in the social justice warrior, uh, like the wars that happened in the sewing community. I don't know if you've heard about those. <laughs> She's no. a sewist. Yes. All right. <laughs> uh, they've tried to cancel her several times over, cancel her small business, and she just keeps going. So anyway, Great. She says, yeah, lawyer guy. Have you ever done a show on cancel culture, defamation, slander, specifically when competing businesses and serial cancelers are involved? Yes, I'm looking for free <laughs> legal advice. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I have not done a specific show uh, that specific to that topic, but it's a topic that in general we talk about with frequency, cancel culture. Uh, I am... I am a, a free speech absolutist to the point where I, I think there are, there are certain um, constitutionally permissible restrictions on, on some speech, child pornography, uh, you know, is, is not protected, should not be protected. Um, actual threats of violence, I guess, should not be protected as, as speech because the, an actual threat of violence that's credible is violence, right? It, it causes harm. Uh, to a person and that's why that's why it's done so things like that um are not protected speech and therefore the, those should be those should be stopped but i think everything else should be allowed and and i'm actually kind of uh an opponent of of your your speech has consequences uh in the term in the way that it's meant now right mm -hmm. like because i don't think your your speech should result in mobs of people uh changing the narrative about what you do uh yeah. for the purposes of getting you destroyed def defamation you know effectively well, so we talk about it a lot 
Well, plus they, it's really different. The cancel culture thing, I've thought about it a lot. And and what what is the difference between like voting with your feet, which I don't have a problem with, with the idea yeah. of saying, I don't support your business practices or there's something about you I don't support, therefore I'm not going to buy from you. I'm going to vote with right. my dollars and my feet. I'm going to go somewhere else. That's very different than than trying to cut their feet off. <laughs> it's like, yes. and no one else will be able to buy from you either. Like I right. will form this pitchfork mob and, and destroy you, which I think, I think that's the difference. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you don't like something, don't buy it. If you don't like someone you, and, and you can get the thing that you want somewhere else, then don't buy it from them. You know, that's, mm -hmm. that's fine. If you want to tell your friends, I, you know, I don't really like this person. I don't think, uh, I don't think, you, you know, I don't think I should buy stuff and maybe you would consider that because I know we feel the same about these issues. Sure. Uh, that that's fine. But it's, it's when you, when you go to advertisers and you represent them as racist, uh, and, and you say, this is the, this is the thing that they're doing. And this is racist because of this social reason that we have constructed to be racist. Um, and, and therefore they're bad. I think that's where you start to get into those, those interference with, uh, with business relations issues. And there are lawsuits around that, but they're not built for the internet, um, in the same way that, that they were originally intended. So the law hasn't caught up on it, but I, I do think there's a limit and the, a lot of the blame though is on advertisers. That's where the blame really advertisers or, or intermediaries in this sort of traditional business model that we have, that's where a lot of the blame for this needs to lie because they're ultimately making the decision based on an email they got from someone they've never met who maybe has never even purchased their product and they're taking, they're giving it credibility and they're saying, oh my gosh, if this, if this person who sent me this email feels this way, definitely everybody else feels this way. And therefore I, as an advertiser look bad. It's like, no, I don't, I don't think anybody actually thinks like that. And there's, there's a big difference between like, uh, you know, advertising for the Ku Klux Klan, right. And, and advertising for someone who, uh, who said a racist thing back in 1985, that's, that's been recently unearthed and associated with their business. Uh, that, that's way different. Um, and, and I think that, uh, advertisers need to just advertisers and, and agents and all of the people who make these decisions need to chill the hell out you when they backbone. Yeah. Yeah. Cause at the end of the day, what really happens the majority of the time, it's like 30 emails that they get and they're like, Oh my God, it's a disaster. And it's like, you sell thousands of products. This is 30 emails. Yeah. You, you, you're paying for ad space for 10, 20, 50, a hundred thousand views. Like if you're buying, if you're doing a YouTube ad buy, you're buying hundreds of thousands of, of views is, is the purchase. And, and you're, you're worried about 30 emails. Like, and, come on. And sometimes those 30 emails are all the same person under different yes. names. <laughs> yep. It, <laughs> not just, it's, it's often that way. The, the, it, the the internet has allowed people to overrepresent concern, and and it, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah. That, that. Um, I wanted to switch gears and ask you about about something else. I know that you're a big proponent of homeschooling, mm -hmm. and um, is it? Do you teach you teach kids constitutional law? 
also? Yeah, uh, not constitutional law. I teach them the constitution. Little, little different. Okay. Um, there's some law sprinkled in, but like a constitutional law class gets uh, really deep into um, issues and, and would, I don't know that uh, an hour every two weeks would be sufficient to get through much of it. <laughs> so, um, but yes, at our, we, we have a homeschool co-op uh, that we attend and the parents get to, you know, teach some of these uh, elective classes. So I teach the constitution. Sometimes I teach the constitution. Sometimes I teach criminal law. Um, next year I might teach the Kyle Rittenhouse case um, specifically or the Johnny Depp case. I, you know, who knows uh, what I'll do, but um, yeah, I, I teach uh, middle schoolers and high schoolers something every year. <laughs> Can it's you fun. tell me a little about, see, so my background is, sort of that, well, um, when I was younger, a young adult, I had this sort of pre very prejudiced view of people who homeschooled. Mm -hmm. And I was, a, Me too. I was a leftist for a long time also. Uh, I was in the social justice world for about 20 years. Um, and I, I, I looked down on them. So you, you also, I had this idea that it was, it was just like, uh, extreme weirdos. Yeah. Weirdos, religious freaks. And, uh, and now, my opinion on it has changed. I think that might be because my opinions are moving, but also because who's homeschooling, that's also changing. Mm -hmm. And the reasons why they're homeschooling is changing. Can you make, what's your argument for homeschooling kids today? If you can. Yeah. A couple, a couple things. First of all, the reason, uh, the reason we all thought homeschooling was full of weirdos is because uh, it, it kind of was, and that's not a negative or a pejorative weirdo, right? Like these are people who had, um, such strongly held beliefs that they would take their kids out of school. And a lot of times those beliefs would cause their kids to be sheltered from other things. And when you're in the unsheltered portion of society, the sheltered portion looks weird. Uh, it always does. They, 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 they made themselves into an out group. And so we, we go, uh, when you're when you're in high school or whatever, and you meet that homeschool kid who comes into high school for a class or for like to newly assimilate into the population, and they have a completely different set of social skills, they're not acclimated to this social environment. You're like this this kid's weird, man. I can barely talk to him. He's not watch the latest X Y Z. Doesn't play the latest game that I play. Uh, he's not. Uh, you know, up to date on the latest school drama. Like what the hell even is this person? So that's, that's how I always looked at it, but I was always looking at it from an in-group perspective. And uh, what's up lady? I can't right now. Is, can, is your brother here? No one's here. Just me and you. And mom, can you ask mom, please? <laughs> She'll be done in a second. Get out of here. I, I'm on a show. <laughs> I I can't right now, sweetheart. <laughs> go. Go on. You want a hug? Oh, this is Aww. see, this is it. Come here. Hi. <laughs> okay, get out of here. <laughs> oh my goodness. This is the most adorable interruption on a show ever. <laughs> <laughs> so
So, uh, <laughs> I like her. Um, so I was, I was always looking at it from the in-group perspective and they were the out-group. Uh, then, uh, you know, and this is before I started homeschooling, but as I, as I got older and reflected on things and would engage in discussions with friends on uh, Facebook and stuff like that, um, one of my friends said something that really triggered me on the issue. And he, he had said, uh, well, these kids just aren't, uh, they're not socializing properly. And then I thought about it and I was like, wait a minute. When I was in high school, I was an asshole in a society of colossal assholes mm -hmm. of, of absolute. I can't think of anybody who wanted to remain in the high school mindset, uh, and social structure that existed. And I thought about, you know, when we got out of, of this environment, we de you deprogram, right? And when you encounter people that you knew and you're like, man, you're still in high school, that's an insult. That That's a horrible thing to ascribe to an adult who's supposed to be Like in the high school that. mentality. Yeah, right? like yeah. you're stuck back in high school. You're the same person you were back then. Didn't you get out and grow? And I thought, wait a minute. So why do we want to socialize kids into this environment that is objectively reviled by people who have gotten out of it. Like what, what value is there in socialization into a system that you will deprogram out of once the moment it's over. And I thought, okay, that just, for me, that defeated all of the socialization arguments that exist. I mean, I, I do think kids should be socialized and you, what you probably just heard was me explaining or asking my four-year-old real where all of their siblings were and uh, most of them are not here. That's because we have them go to programs, to classes, to extracurricular activities, tons of them. So they do interact with other kids and other people mm -hmm. and other adults. But um, yeah, they're, they're socialized into life interactions, not a high school environment. And, right. and so, so I think that we want kids to be socialized because we, I do not think it is the healthiest to have kids hyper sheltered uh, like some of the sort of 30 years ago homeschooling looked like. Right. But these days it's not like that. You have homeschool co-ops for people you have where, where people go in and they have like a, a temporary classroom setting. They get to interact with different kids. Uh, they, they take classes from other adults. Um, you have uh, the ability to have your kids through a lot of hard work of homeschoolers participate in programs at their local school systems like band, for example, or speech or football or basketball. They can get onto the teams in a lot of areas. And so they have opportunities for socialization um, that exist, but not inside that structure. And so mm -hmm. I, I think I think the the rising popularity of it is it's bringing more money and resources into everything, which is always I mean, you when you in in flood, when you flood a market with cash, you will get eventually better innovation going on. And that's happening. Um, the, the quality of homeschool curricula that you can buy that you don't have to develop on your own is getting so much better. I mean, heck, Kevin Sorbo's wife, right? Sam Sorbo, she uh, has developed a homeschool curriculum or partnered with someone to do, to do one as well. Like you can, uh, and you can vet these things. You, you don't get to vet your kid's education in public schools anymore. Yeah. Um, but you, you do get to vet it in homeschools you get, cause you're the one choosing it. Yeah. So I, I mean, I just think as, as that stuff happens, 
uh, and, and innovation grows and, and more people do it. And we see what's going on in the public and, and even private school systems with this, this unassailable influx of, of culture that doesn't belong there. This woke yeah. ideology, this, uh, critical race theory. Um, and you can't, you're powerless against it. And oftentimes they'll, uh, uh, obfuscate you from it as those two things go uh you know those are just converging on a ro road towards more and more people homeschooling or going back to a traditional community schoolhouse uh pod schooling stuff like that i mean i would mm -hmm. i think uh a really great thing would be to get you know a couple families together and and hire an an expert tutor to to do um, a ton of, of the education. Cause I know that some people think I can't do it or I don't have time, but it's like, man, if we could, if we could get like a school choice voucher and, and get, think about that. Every kid gets $17,000 to spend how on their education, the way they're supposed to be, you get five, six families or whatever together. And you, you hire a couple, uh, experts to teach, you know, a, as a group. Yeah. Okay. Did you get our little girl a pouchy? Okay, she's supposed to come ask you because she came to ask me. <laughs> uh, but I, I, you know, I, I think there's so much opportunity for people to uh, homeschooling doesn't necessarily mean you have to teach. You have to do it uh, yourself. Yeah. Yeah. It it just means you are in control of your child's education, and and that can take on a lot of forms. And I think as more and more people realize that, and we develop. Uh, better markets for it and and the market of public schooling is is destroyed i think it, it's objectively good yeah I've, I've also seen studies recently that show that um you know the speaking of the woke ideology there are the people who push that ideology are always claiming to speak on behalf of marginalized groups of people of color and and i saw some recent studies that said actually children of color do better when they have school choice Mm -hmm. when they have the option of, of charter schools or homeschooling communities. So, uh, Oh yeah. Well, and if you go, oh, go, go ahead. Well, it just seems like they, they want to hide information like that. That's not a part of the narrative and they're moving against it almost entirely. It's like, I'm, we're speaking on behalf of these groups. Well, Hey, this thing is actually good. Good for these groups, giving people a choice. We're just going to ignore that. <laughs> we're just going to say it's part of white supremacy. Yeah. And it, it's, it's so silly because when you look at, um, predominantly minority, uh, demographic schools, uh, it's, and, and there's all sorts of reasons for this, but you're talking about schools that are in, um, typically high economic impact areas, right? You're, you're talking about, um, poor schools in poor areas with poor funding and and so giving parents school choice allows them to choose a school that isn't garbage <laughs> like that's that's the main thing and and you know typically when we're talking about race and in this stuff we're we're mostly speaking about african americans but when when you go to schools that are 90 plus percent african american schools they're in the poor areas of you know detroit or dc or wherever and if you give the option to uh, do school choice and have the kid go to a charter school instead, you get out of this nasty uh, administrative trap uh, of education that doesn't work mm -hmm. for that 
for those people, for those kids. And you, you put them into something that you think might work a, a different approach to education that might work. Um, you know, the charter schools have flexibility in how they do things, but, and then private schools of course have even more flexibility in how they do things. Um, but when, yeah, when, when you take kids out of those public school pits that, that just become in some places, uh, a, a route to prison. I mean, I know it's, it's, it's a meme, but it's true. Um, I was going to say earlier when you were talking about not all socialization is good. I mean, immediately came to mind it's like well there's a lot of socialization that happens in prison also it's not like we want everyone right. to go there and experience the socialization <laughs> you know exactly it's, and it's, and and you don't you certainly don't want your kids going to a baltimore middle school right like yeah. oh my god uh that where where half the kids don't show up where where was it it was one of the i think this was a detroit article but um one kid was in the middle of the class middle of his class and he had a 0.59 GPA. He was in the middle of the class. Wow. And it's like, you know, a lot of people who, who don't live in a specifically poor or really drug riddled communities don't necessarily experience that. So they think of public school. It's like, well, I went to a public school in uh, like, like mine, I went to a public school in Lakeville, Minnesota, 95% white and upper class, right? Like this is, uh, now of, uh, now Lakeville is like their football team so good that people buy houses to get their kids into football and, and stuff like that. But, um, it's like that. So yeah, when you go to that public school, it's like, well, this, you know, they're educating people. Okay. And they seem to have good resources. It's like, well, yeah, but you can't just look here, man. This isn't yeah. where the bulk of those problems are. There's still the, that's where we get into the, you know, the outside cultural problems of, you know, critical race theory and stuff being injected into curriculum, but there are immediate physical problems in many of these schools and, uh, and their immediate attendance problems, not because kids are being truant, but because kids have to go sell drugs to help their mom pay rent or whatever. It's, uh, it's terrible. It's terrible. Can we, can we talk about some of those cultural problems? My, my, uh, talk about whatever you want. Cool. My, this series started because a, a little about my background, I was, so as I said, I kind of fell in with social justice mm -hmm. over 20 years ago. I, I was, uh, I went to Duke university in the late nineties and it, it was before social justice had corrupted the hard sciences, but it was in all of the social sciences. And so sure. my minor was women's studies and that's where I was kind of imbibing all this stuff. And it, it, it really presents itself as a kind of, it presents itself as a, a liberalism or progressivism when it's, I, I now realize it's anything but that. Mm -hmm. um, but I encountered it way back then. I was a true believer. I pushed it in my work for like two decades. Um, I took it into the entertainment world where I worked with comedians and it was really like, oh, we're going to change the world with, you know, through comedy, we're going to inject all these ideas, <laughs> right? And we did. But why aren't these jokes funny? No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, They don't need to be funny when there's like a, a congregation there clapping, right? <laughs> right. Like they're exactly. at church. That's what it was like. It was like church. <laughs> but uh, I started waking up in 2016, 2017. It was a slow process. And I think that's because actually the ideology accelerated at that time. It got bigger. Mm -hmm. Um, the, uh, the campaign season with Trump and, and Hillary, things just 
kind of shot up. All of a sudden, for the first time, I heard major political candidates like Hillary Clinton was talking about implicit bias, which I had only ever heard in my little social justice world. And so these phrases started becoming more mainstream. And it and it it I think that caused some people to kind of really take a look at what it was. There was also a lot of violence I saw happening with people yeah. on my side being violent. And so um but what it also did, so some people started waking up, but then other people like really went into it hardcore. And we're at a place now where I think it's become, I mean, it's so culturally dominant that you have corporations like McDonald's are speaking woke. It's in K through 12 now. Um, oh, yeah. When did you first become, I'm always curious in asking people, what's your, what's your story of when you first became aware of this ideology, like permeating things? Um, well, I, I was raised Catholic uh, and have always been fairly, I guess, con Republican or conservative or something um, forever. Uh, that, that's just kind of how I was, I was raised. And then, uh, you know, as I was, I went through high school, not really thinking too much about it. I mean, I talked a little bit about freedom and stuff and, and just general, but uh, as I was going through college is when I started to notice more of it. And I graduated college in 2005, I think. Yeah, I think it was 2005 that I graduated college uh, undergrad. And, you know, it, there were just some classes near the end uh, of it. Uh, I was a literature and creative writing major. And so I was in writing classes and writing workshops all the time. And that's where, I mean, that's where that stuff really started to come through. Mm. Uh, specifically, critical approaches to literature was where I learned about critical theory, not critical race theory, but just critical theory. And uh, critical theory was was interesting. Uh, there's there's all sorts of critical theories that are not that have nothing to do with social justice. Um, there's like critical uh, geographic theory, right? Which is like uh, basically how does the the geographic location of a work or an author or a, a, a subject of the work, how does that influence its message and what, what can we draw out of it based on what we know about those things? So that's, that's fine. I mean, you can make that into a critical race thing too, right? If you're like, well, the geographic location is Uganda. So um, you can do that, but uh, it's, it's not necessarily so, but of course there is critical race theory or critical feminist theory, um, which was my first, the first thing that we covered, we didn't, uh, in, in this, we're reading poems by Elizabeth Bishop and, uh, having to analyze that <laughs> through critical feminist lens. And it's like, well, this is, this is terrible. Um, and then I took, uh, a, I took a, a porn class where we were looking <laughs> at porn through the lens of fem critical feminist theory and queer theory. Okay. Why didn't I have this class? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Sorry uh, to interrupt you. No, no, no. I keep, I keep, see, I flashbacks. hear about all these classes. I went to too small of a school in a little, like in a small town. So I was like, dang it. I missed all the good ones. Because <laughs> um, I had, uh, I did have a lit and film class, which was not supposed to be a critical theory class. It was, we would read a book and we'd watch the movie adaptation and talk about the discussions or the, the differences and the, you know, the process of adapting the, the book to the movie and what sort of sacrifices they have to make or embellishments there were. And 
the class itself was taught by this very nice uh, super gay man, uh, Viet Din, uh, was a professor. And he's great. Like, I, I like him a lot. But all of us, we're sitting there, my buddy and I, who are two very conservative Christians, are sitting there in this class like, all these movies are gay. <laughs> like, and I don't mean gay as in like, like lame. I mean, gay as in like, these are super okay. gay. Uh, it was like the films like Morris, uh, Before Night Falls. Um, ah, gosh, there, there were some other, I mean, we, we, we did do Solaris, which wasn't, uh, didn't really have anything like that in there. Uh, and we did, I'm kidding. Oh, we did election, <laughs> which was only kind of gay, but there, there were a couple others as well. And, and we're noticing this and then, you know, we're having debates in this class about the adaptations and the differences and the, man, I, I will never forget my, my buddy and I are sitting there and we're debating the movie adaptation of before night falls, which is the autobiography or biography. I can't remember of uh, Ronaldo Arenas. He was a Cuban. Uh, he's a Cuban man who uh, defected to America when, well, he was sent to America with all the other prisoners when Cuba opened the prisons, right? He was in a Cuban prison because, uh, because of his homosexual acts. But the movie portrays Reynaldo Arenas as a gay man. Uh, the book portrays him as a sexual man. Uh, he has sex with trees, with dirt, with animals, with women, with men. Like his life is just this uh, endless tirade of sex. In the movie, they kind of vaguely and obliquely reference the fact that he's super promiscuous, but he has three long-term monogamous gay relationships in the movie. And I'm like, this shit isn't in the book at all. at all. And, and this is where my, my buddy and I are sitting there arguing with people about like, this is agendized out of its mind. This is pushing the, cause this is right during the gay marriage debate really heating up in, in 2004 at the time. And we're like, this is pushing a narrative uh, for the purposes of selling homosexuality but that's not the book. I mean, if you read the book, it is he's slept, he slept with over a thousand women, like 5,000 men. Again, uh, it talks about animals and it's, it's kind of horrifying. Uh, but, but it's like, th this is not the purpose of this book. This is the purpose of this movie. And we were, I mean, we were pilloried by that class for raising those points, but that's when we noticed, or when I noticed that this stuff was really getting pervasive and, uh, and I mean, again, this coincides with the, with the gay marriage debate that was going on in society. And it's like, okay, no, this is an agenda. It's being pushed in entertainment. They're, they're, they're changing this man's life story to suit that agenda. And it's, that's really, I think he died of AIDS, you know? So it was also like, that was part of the, the movie was the AIDS story. Mm. Um, but it's like that. And now this is the point. Yeah, go ahead. Well, now it's to the point where it's like every superhero and every comic book and it's like, you know, so-and-so is coming out as as gay and bi and now it's asexual and, you know, there's all the, the race and gender swapping. And um, I think it's gotten to the point where most people can't help but see it now, would you say? Yeah. Like, yeah, because you you, it's that depressing acceptance that it's going to be everywhere and it's to the point where if it's not there as much you automatically or i do i go oh this is a good movie because i don't <laughs> have to worry about the bullshit even if the movie's not any good yeah. you're like oh at least i didn't have to be beat over the head by how much i hate somebody 
Oh God, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. My, my friend and I were talking about this. It's sort of a, now we've lowered our standards a little bit. We're just like, oh, but at least there wasn't any wokeness. So this is great. <laughs> we're so we're so used to being preached to. <clears throat> yeah, it's so. it's <clears throat> it's wild because it's like uh, that's that's what I've been talking about over the past couple years. As I started getting invited to anime conventions uh, to to do panels and stuff, is is that uh, trying to remind people this is about escape. It's about mm-hmm. escape from the world. I don't want these, I don't want yeah. these problems, which in like, let's be, let's be fair. There are some issues that go on, right? Like there is prejudice towards people that happens not at the scale and scope uh, and, and uh, world destructing capacity that they seem to make it out to be, but sure. There's going to be, there's going to be prejudice or biases or bigotry or in-group outgroup thinking, whatever you want to call it, wherever it'll manifest that will happen forever. We'll just change the label that matters, right? Uh, today it's gay. Eventually it'll be, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, knitters or something. That's already uh, happened. You should know right. there's a lot of knitters in the chat today. Yeah. <laughs> no, I I do. Yeah. I do. Uh, I, I know about the, the war in the knitting community. Uh, I didn't know it also went into the sewing community, but it, it's it's everywhere. But but some there will always be an out group. And, the, you know, some some literature and entertainment can help us process how we deal with those things. But I prefer the way we used to do it. I prefer X-Men, right? Where X-Men was this great thing that created an outgroup, but that outgroup was externalized from reality because they're mutants that don't exist, that have superpowers that are, but there's a prejudice uh, going on against these mutants because of their, because of their differences. And so that, that was a blank slate for, uh, you know, a gay kid to pick up this book and go, I'm like the, I, I am the out, I'm the other that people are, and, and how do they deal with it? And how do they do it? Form community, advocate for yourself. Uh, but, but ultimately like the, the X-Men are the ones who are supposed to interact with society as much as reasonably possible and to do so in a positive way. Whereas Magneto and the villains want to, you know, dominate and control society. And, and so it's like, if you look at that, that's, that's the recipe for dealing with in group out group thinking. And you don't have to be like, this is gay. This is black. This is whatever. Like, because people get to read into the literature what they want. That's what escapism is supposed. And if you don't want to, by the way, if you just want to pick up X-Men and see some guy, some weirdo with claws an alcoholic, uh, hairy man running around Siberia, slashing people up, you can do that too. And, and just tune out the world. That's how escapism and entertainment is supposed to work. Uh, remove us from the world so that we can confront our real issues in our own way as they manifest in our lives. And, and it's why reading a book two to three times at different points in your life, you'll learn different things about it. Do you, can I ask you, you, you mentioned you're a Christian. I'm a yeah. pretty new, new Christian and it's kind of shaping the way I view this cultural war now. Um, because I know I agree with some of my atheist friends. Well, we agree there's a culture war happening, but then we'll disagree on, like, I, th- I think it's also a spiritual war, which I know that makes me sound cheesy, but whatever. I do. No, I'm with you. Um, what do you, how do you think we got here and where, and where do you think we're going? <laughs> it's a big question, uh, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, 
the unrelenting step of progressivism. Um, and, and I, I mean, progressive is a blanket term. We understand it a particular way in, in the West because it's been a particular way for a century and a half. No, just a century and maybe a decade, but, um, is it's, it's the hundred year plan that, that updates every year. And so it's this inexorable step towards the conclusion, unrelenting, uh, and, and, uh, <laughs> unhalted. They know that they know that, uh, the longer the, the timeline goes, those steps will eventually amount to, uh, a leap and then, uh, you know, a mile. And that's, that's the, the game. And so what, what happened was people got this idea about how things should go and, and, and don't get me wrong. Progressivism started in the, uh, you know, early 20th century, really, uh, in the West per particularly, and their ideas about how it would go were not really linked to today's progressivism, right? It wasn't, it, those weren't the ideas we're talking about. They were not talking about critical race theory in the right. same way in 1922 Our that we would today. Kids. Right. That, that wasn't there. But what was there was, an, uh, was the progressivism of control and central planning. And, uh, and so then the controllers and central planners sacrificed themselves on the altar of economic opportunity for the purposes of political and social influence. And so instead of taking positions that were, you know, that we would normally think of traditionally engineered to maximize your, your labor's profitability, um, they started taking on positions that didn't pay as well. But, uh, but kept you around forever and allowed you influence over other people, government jobs, teaching jobs, professor jobs. And they started just planting people in there uh, who had the same mindset, centralized social control. And would you, can I, can I interrupt you for one second? Of course. I'm aware there are people who are in my old belief system who watch me sometimes. And I'm, I try to put myself back in that mindset. Cause I know they're probably hearing this and thinking, what do you mean by control and central planning? Like they, I think truly haven't even. I'm calling you commies. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, <laughs> sort of, <laughs> sort of, no, it's, um, uh, but, but it, it, it's really about like, God, is it about the idea of like who has the right to um is it the, is it the government versus the individual that's the way i've started to think about it like who has control over your choices sure um or is and, a better and, way? and to be clear a, a lot of people who engage in what i'm labeling as social control they do it for like pretty good reasons right they want to make sure there's good schools or they want to make sure there's uh, you know, uh, just a better functioning DMV or whatever it may be, but that, that automatically concedes the point that the DMV should be better or that the D or that the schools should be more good, uh, in the way that you think that they should be. And, and so as, uh, it is government versus individual, it's, uh, but it's also cultural versus individual. Um, and, and it, the idea is that, well, I like, uh, and I'm, I'm being as deferential as possible here. I like the idea of freedom, but not that much freedom for people. Like I, I get uncomfortable with their choices. And I think maybe we, we need to have some, some limits and structures about that. And I'm the person to do it. 
Yes. It's how some of these people approach it because, because I see this thing that I don't like. And so I think other people should not like it too. Uh, and, and when, when you get people generally activated enough to have that motivation to impose those sort of values on society because they think it, and again, largely they think it'll make a better society. I'm not calling them bad people. Just, I think, I think there's a misguided approach or just maybe one that just conflicts with mine, which is, I, I think if individuals maximize themselves as much as possible, um, that we create a good society too, like that. And there's sure there's risk that there will be bad actors, uh, but there, there always will be bad actors. So I, I don't see that as, as that risky, but, but yeah, as, as people started planting themselves in a place to implement some level of change or to implement some level of control, you can call those things the same thing. Cause they are, um, we now are at a point where there it's so pervasive and, uh, they have, um, expanded the their own administrative power through the administrative yes. state so much that they have so much impact. I mean, the Department of Education starting in 1960 was a way or in the 1960s, I shouldn't say 1960, was a was a way to distribute federal funds and to try and level out the differences in schooling through, you know, throughout uh it differences in resources for schools, I should say, throughout the country. You've got Poor, uh, poor schools in Kentucky and rich schools in, um, you know, Seattle, or I, I don't know how to, mm -hmm. what, what the breakdown was in when this started, but you have poor schools in some areas and wealthy schools in other areas. And this is a way to, to kind of spread funding when there, there might not be as much local tax resources available. So, uh, but, but how has the department of education metastasized from what it was into what it is? And it, it all started with, you know, some sort of just vague notion of, you know, we can make things a little more equal among these schools. And now it's, well, we really need all of these schools to start implementing critical race theory into curriculums and teaching why teaching, uh, ethno non-ethnocentric math. Yeah. Like, yeah, wait, what? Th that's not what you were supposed to do, but the department of education has bloated and inflated since then. And now they, they give out more and more money and then now they want to return on their investment. They want to justify their dollars. Well, if we're going to pump dollars in these schools, we can't have them teaching about the Confederacy. That would be, that would be horrible. That was a bad time in American history. So that's, that's how all of these things work is. Strikes, yeah, go ahead. go ahead. Well, it strikes me that all of it, it seems like the, it always starts with good intent or at least the appearance of good intent that people yeah. buy into. And then it's, you know, even, even with the cancel culture mobs, it's the same thing. They're like, we're trying to make sure you go out of business because what you're doing is harmful. We're going to protect people from, you know, wrongly choosing to buy from you. <laughs> <or something. laughs> right. <laughs> but it, but it, yeah, metastasizes, as you said, until, and then, and then they're true. That controlling nature comes out. It's so it's authoritarian. It's very, it's, it's in a weird way, it's exactly the way a lot of people on the left viewed the, the Christian conservative right of the 1990s, you know, dictating what people can't, protecting people from themselves, like what you can and can't do. We mm -hmm. want to make these choices for you. And the left is doing that now. Yeah. And it, it used to be, it used to be the right. It used to be the Christian right 
in, in a lot of ways, right? Like the 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 devil's scare about heavy metal and Dungeons yes. and Dragons and um and all of this stuff and the, this this sort of uh you know hyper reactive take. But why it, when we look at why it was like that, it's not the belief system, it's the power that they had. The Christian right had tons of power and influence throughout the 50s. And, and that's why we see the countercultural revolution in the 60s and stuff. And then as, as that power was being siphoned away from the Christian, uh, the, the Christian, I guess, power structure, uh, we saw the death throes. We saw them lash out. Like, I'm, you know, they, they were probably at peak power in, in the 50s and early 60s. But then uh, that starts to whittle down. And by the 80s, they're in the death throes of power and cultural influence. It's going away and it's going away rapidly. And that's when they're railing against it. And they they know they've got this older generation who doesn't tolerate any of, of the stuff that's going on. And they they still had that power structure, that voting base, um, uh, the the people with money as well, the retirees, uh, people who have time to volunteer, who aren't like raising families and, mm -hmm. and working their butts off to, to try and pay, pay the rent. All of that stuff feeds into uh, this ability to lash out like one last time. And then we saw it snuff out, right? Like the, the Christian, the Christian right is not hyper powerful anymore. And they right. don't exercise that social influence in the way that they used to. But the same people, the same types of people who were doing that, it's whatever personality type is uh, drawn into the attraction to that power, the ability to have social influence. And again, the Christian right thought they were doing good. And we're protecting kids yeah. from turning into witches because who likes them? We have to burn those at the stake. And so uh, they that's that was the idea. Now it's now it's who. We want to protect kids from turning into racists. Who likes those? We have to burn them at the stake. Do you know that quote I'm thinking of? Uh, I'll probably mangle it, but it, it's a Solzhenitsyn quote about ideology is necessary to do evil because it's because people have to convince themselves that they're doing good to do it. Most people, not all those right. sociopaths, psychopaths, they love doing evil, but uh, most people who yeah. go along <laughs> with it and and who make it possible for evil to flourish on a mass scale. Like historically, that's like they have to convince themselves they're doing it on behalf of something good. Yeah, that it, uh, it's uh, the sim the the easier one that I'm more familiar with is the road to hell is paved with good intentions yes. or whatever. But but yeah, it's it's this idea. Uh, of course, you want to you want to people to believe that they're doing something good, valuable, and worthy because that's attractive right we were talking about johnny depp at the beginning of this thing and and how much he must want to not be an abuser like how much yeah. that must uh eat away at him if his story is true which i i tend to i think it's credible I so think it's I, credible but uh but yeah he wants to do good because he saw the damage that it does to him and yeah sorry this like is that, that quote dion dion in chat she's like the queen of quotes she says, I, this is the quote, ideology, that, that is what gives the evil doing its long sought justification and gives the evildoer the necessary steadfastness and determination. And yeah, it's quote. also, there's a C.S. Lewis quote about that too, where he talks about how um, he would almost rather be ruled by a, a, like a, a tyrant, like a robber baron than by a benevolent 
tyrant because the benevolent tyrant thinks that he's doing all this on, he can sleep with a good conscience because it's for your benefit. Yeah. Yeah. And oh, <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it's, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of thinkers who have, uh, addressed this issue. And, um, one of them that I, I like in, in many ways is, uh, Ayn Rand, uh, addressed a lot of these issues too, in, in the books, um, specifically in the Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, uh, you, the, the, the shocking thing is the Fountainhead and the Atlas and, and Atlas Shrugged, uh, the, their ability or her ability to prophesy the media class <laughs> in those books and how they're portrayed. I don't know. If, have you read either of them? No, I haven't. Uh, uh, I'm familiar with some of the stuff she's written about envy, uh, but I haven't, no, I haven't read the books. Okay. So the, the, the best part is there's all these ar aristocratic parties that, because the characters in both of these are highly successful people, right? Successful because of their own motivation and ability, but they're around a bunch of successful people who are, who are leeches. Like they, they fell into it. They don't innovate. They don't really care about the work. They maybe had money coming in, but then there's the, the, the media parasitic class that hovers around them. And she describes them. This is Twitter, by the way. Uh, the, and it's so perfect. Uh, she describes them as these um, very important people who write very important books that nobody buys and nobody reads, but everybody compliments. And, uh, I was thinking about this because you go on Twitter and you'll see these Twitter accounts with like 4 million followers because they're on CNN or whatever. And then, but if you go and look at their timeline, the like tweets that they make, they get like a hundred likes on them. I've seen this happen. Yes. And then uh, the, the best is that stupid CNN doctor Sanjay Gupta went on Joe <laughs> Rogan show and he was, he released that book that, that he released. And it was like, it was embarrassingly low on Amazon's list. And he's like, Oh, I'm releasing this very important book about COVID and stuff. No one bought it, but he got lauded and praised for this book. And he's this, Oh, look, Sanjay Gupta is going on Joe Rogan. It's like, who, who cares about this guy? I mean, I knew that guy was a pile of garbage. The moment he said in his article that he wrote after, uh, after his interview that, that he doesn't, he sat down and talked to, uh, to Joe Rogan for three hours. I've never had a three hour conversation in my entire life. I'm like, really? That's what he said. Yes. <laughs> in his entire life. He's never had a three. It was the longest conversation he's ever had. And it's like, you've never sat down and, and interacted with someone for that long. And why do we value you at all? You have yeah. what, how do you purport to know people? How do you purport to know anything? How do you purport to know yourself? You, you haven't explored it. They, they're um, very good at the, um, the soundbite that they, yeah. they're not good at having like authentic. I think that's why you see so many people looking for alternative media, looking for podcasts and shows and because they're, I think, I think maybe people are getting tired of just the, um, prepackaged, get your point across in two sentences, you know, get your knife in there. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And and not to revisit the old topic, but uh, one of the things that I'm seeing a lot with people who watch uh, these trials through with me, because we've done four or five trials now um, since, you know, the Kyle Rittenhouse, of course, but the, some of the lesser ones, Curtis Reeves was the, uh, the Florida popcorn shooter um, where I don't know if you saw that, but he's an old man. Uh, old man was in a movie theater 
and um, got into a verbal altercation with uh, with a younger man. And um, he ends up, the the younger man ends up throwing popcorn at him and he shoots the guy. He shoots the guy for I say for throwing popcorn at him because that's the media narrative that went. But it turns out there's a whole lot more to it. Turns out uh, he was struck in the head by something that wasn't popcorn prior to the popcorn being thrown. Uh, when you think of it, it's in a darkened movie theater. The younger man was six foot four and is standing over him while he's a 70 plus year old man sitting in a seat, unable to stand up. And the guy's throwing or he's reaching in to grab the popcorn kind of looks like a punch coming at him. So this is a guy uh, who ends up getting off of this. Like he kills this guy in a movie theater and the entire narrative was killed over popcorn. And if you, uh, the the best was when we did a poll at the end of the case on my channel, it was something like 80% of the audience thought that he was not guilty under mm -hmm. Florida law and law and crime had the same thing going, no commentary, but 80% uh, of the people thought he was guilty. Um, but you had me and uh, myself and Andrew Branca, who's a self-defense expert talking about how this trial was going, what evidence mattered uh, how they're they're doing this and the, then the nuances of Florida law at the end. And it's like, yeah, this this guy's going to get off. But if you watch all of the media coverage on it and they were all convinced he was going to he's guilty. Same with Rittenhouse. Yep. Yeah. Same with Rittenhouse, because it, those those sound bites and snippets allow you to remove all the context. And I think that's that's something that people are noticing is when they when they get when they're able to explore a topic, uh, they they get so much more out of it. And that's why the news is failing. And so people are. I think choosing to invest their time into less topics because that's the the benefit of the news soundbite is well everything's a three minute segment so we we can get 10 20 segments in a single show whereas if you're covering Kyle Rittenhouse you it's going to take you four weeks to get through this one subject and it's going to be eight hours a day for four straight weeks um the, but that's how issues are resolved it's not by not by drive-by it's it well unless you're in the hood but um it's it's by delving into them in really deeply and i think people are appreciating the ability to do that yes i think so too okay i don't want to keep you too long i'm not sure how much longer i have you um i did just want to get i got time by the way so oh good what, what, okay however you, well whatever uh, you want to do for the well, most before, part then before i ask you these these last few questions pirate could you put up some super chats the ones i missed if there's uh, Michael Minkler says, what are the best resources to research Snowden? Oh, that's, uh, that's a very good question. I don't know <laughs> because I was, uh, you know, I was, I was there in the moment while it was happening, watching it unfold. And, um, uh, then, you know, we talked about it a lot in my constitutional criminal procedure class in law school, which, dealt with fourth amendment law. Um, but I, I don't know what resources I would recommend for it. Uh, I'm sure Glenn Greenwald has some writing about it since he's, he's the guy that Snowden went to that he trusted. So I, I'm, I'm guessing if you sift through Glenn Greenwald's Substack, you can probably find some very competent writing, but if you just type in Snowden and Greenwald and look for, look for articles by Glenn, not about Glenn, you'll probably get, uh, you'll probably get some, some interesting stuff. I'd start there. 
the Japanese Yakuza says, can you ask Nick the great question? Balls or no balls? Uh, you, you know, my answer, Yakuza balls all, all day. <laughs> Nick, uh, this is from farmhand, Tom Nick's Nick. I'm still shipping orders. Uh, thank you. So he made an odor eliminating spray. He sells uh, products um, already, and he had an odor eliminating spray that is now Amber's odor eliminating spray for getting oh, rid nice. of unpleasant odors from bed sheets or or whatever. So, <laughs> you know, I went to a, a, a science and math. Uh, I went to this my 11th and 12th grade. It was like a science and math boarding school. So I'm from South Carolina originally, and uh, some of this was one of the worst education. Um, uh, I guess you would say uh, test scores and records, one of the worst education records. And so a lot of these states that have bad education records started these boarding schools called governor schools where you go and live there. And if you get in and it's, and it actually was a really great, it was much yeah. better than the education I got at Duke. It was amazing. This is a long buildup to say there was a girl I went to school with who did that to another girl. Um, and she didn't defecate, but she peed in her bed. It's a, it's a very, um, uh, it's a very female kind of passive aggressive sort of attack. Did she, was she like gaslighting her into trying to make she make her think that she wet the bed? Or was that it? <laughs> no, was I think it was, it was just, it was just... kind of like, you know, mean girl stuff. Happening. Okay. <laughs> anyway. Wait, you went, you went to Duke, um, are you are you familiar with uh, Duke's most illustrious alumnus? Um, oh, is it the Stephen guy that worked for Trump? No, that oh. pathetic. Uh, <laughs> a, a mental midget compared to who I'm talking about. Who are you talking uh, about? Uh, Matthew C. Harris, a PhD in philosophy from Duke University. I don't know him. Should oh, I, I strongly okay. suggest you read his uh, his work. He has a he has a published work. Um, that's available called death sentences. Uh, it's a phenomenal read. Cool. Okay. I will check them out. Uh, Craig Lighton, Lighton says two of my favorites in one stream time to start doing whiskey shots for super chats, Carrie. <laughs> yes. Thank you, sir. I'll do coffee shots. Uh, <laughs> Cypher warrior says a cartographer question. Where do, where does all the maps belong? Look, I'm, I am a cartographer, uh, by, by hobby, um, not by trade and training, but I, uh, and I, you know, I appreciate a map so long as it's hung beautifully on the wall. Cynthia says I've appointed myself female recruitment manager for Nick's channel. It's lonely on the night streams. Ladies, we need you. Also, it's good fun. <laughs> <laughs> yes, come to a night stream, but uh, let me let me warn you ahead of time. You will laugh at jokes that make you uncomfortable. <laughs> oh, that's I'm used to, I used to work in comedy, and it's also really like I I I still I'm kind of uh sometimes sarcasm goes over my head. I'll just say that, which is actually <laughs> comedians seem to like that more, so it doesn't oh, matter. Yeah. It's like it's yeah. perfect. Anyway, um, Matt Decker, don't poop on beds. Good advice. Always good advice. Yes. Uh, Torgo the White. I'm going to let you read this one because. Sure. Carrie, you behatted shyster YouTuber. <laughs> you wouldn't be deprogramming nobody if it weren't for me. I made you and I can destroy you. <laughs> wow. I've heard something like that. Um, binary Bard. Nick, as a software engineer, I keep thinking of Ripa's parallel economy and what I can contribute. Is there a tool homeschoolers could use, a tool that homeschoolers could use, or is that market already saturated? 
Um, let two two points. Yes, that market is already saturated. Second, with bad products, um, <laughs> make make something. Sure, there's there's tons of tools homeschoolers can use, even if it's an. Uh, I, I don't know what the extent of your software engineering is, but aggregators of curriculum, uh, the resources that people can have um, to uh, any any sort of uh, curriculum that can be translated to iPads. I, dude, my kids are on iPads all day. If you can incorporate learning into um, alternative methods uh, that 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 put kids into the places they want to be like, that's the advantage of homeschool, man. There, there are programs where stuff is taught through Minecraft. They have science and engineering taught through Minecraft. It, it lets kids do the things that they like. Uh, computer programming can be taught through Minecraft too. Let's kids do what they like while also learning. Um, it encourages them to engage and they're, they're going to be doing those things. So give them education through it. Uh, I I don't know what the answers are for you specifically, but yes, there is a ton you can do. And most of, look, uh, I've been to the, the Mache homeschooling conference in Minnesota. And like, you think you call me boomer, but you should see the tech that comes out of that thing. It is because it's, it's individual people doing stuff. And usually they, they don't have the technical skill set and they don't have tons of money to do it. So partner up with people and, and put curriculum into iPads, tablets, Kindles, whatever it is, get stuff into the hands of parents that works well and is smooth and doesn't look like it was programmed on windows, uh, <laughs> like on windows 3.2. Cause it's that bad. Um, and, and you will, you will find ways to do great things. Somebody in the chat, it wasn't a super chat, but somebody asked, um, what uh, what is Ripa talking about with parallel economy? And for anybody who's wondering, I, I've heard a lot of people talking about this lately. I think it's one of those things. It's many people are coming to this agreement that there needs to there might need to be a parallel kind of economy that is not woke. And I don't mm -hmm. mean right left. And in fact, I hope it doesn't become <laughs> right left. I hope it's just like a freedom based economy. So you can see it in. Um, places other than like you're talking about curriculum and homeschooling stuff, but you can see it in places like entertainment with the Daily yep. Wire starting to produce entertainment with so-called canceled stars like Gina Carano. And um, I think I had a friend who said, you know, we need to we need to have every kind of 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 company or job or service. Uh, we need we need florists. We need bakers. We need people who are not going to bow to woke pressure in all these areas. Not going to bow to woke pressure and also just don't hate you like for, for some belief that they, they ostensibly care about so much that if you don't agree with them fully, that they, they think you shouldn't even be allowed to participate. Um, yeah. Daily, daily wires doing it. I mean, we're, we're doing it. YouTube, YouTube itself, I'm using it as a broad term to go beyond YouTube, but, uh, this, the idea of the podcast or the independent, journalist, reporter, commentator, that is a uh, part of the parallel economy. You get to go invest in who you like and want to listen to, not who some corporate board picked uh, and, and polished and then built. Um, people build themselves. And uh, so, yes, but also everything else, you know, because at some point, uh, and I've, 
I really fear this day. I've been talking about it for a couple of years, but um, at some point you will go to your grocery store and when you go to buy your thing and it won't matter if you're using a cash, cash, check, credit card, or tapping with your phone, there will be a little platform and you'll have to put your phone on it and it will scan your social media posts for the past 30 days. And it will determine if you are allowed to buy from that store. And that will not be implemented by the store. It will be part of their point of sale system that is required by their bank for them to enforce because the bank will not want to be associated with selling to someone who is hateful. And if you, if you don't see this coming, I don't know what to tell you. Mm. I've, I've been talking about it since that Jihad watch was removed from Patreon by MasterCard. And it's only gotten worse and worse and worse. And trust me, cash will not save you. Bitcoin will not save you. None of this will save you because you will have to go into a store and their bank, if they don't verify all of the sales with that social media thing, then you just, they will pull their banking from the store because they don't care about money anymore. They don't yeah. care about any of that. And, uh, and the store owners are going to go, well, I have to bank. So we do need a parallel economy. We need parallel banking. We need parallel grocering. We need parallel oil changes. You need par parallel everything because that that is coming. The and, ESG uh, score, which yeah. I've just been learning a little more about. And, and, and it's already a lot of corporations are already having to, to use it and are willingly using it. Yeah, it's how they <laughs> it's how they're. <laughs> Their credit worthiness is being determined like your credit score from Equifax. Uh, their credit score is being calculated on social reliability uh, as much as it is. And why? Why is it? They built that system, by the way. They built their bed because they kept catering to this and making society think that if someone if some business wasn't woke enough, that it would ultimately fail due to political opinion. But that is almost never happened <laughs> not organically yeah. it's it only happens inorganically by an external actor so but but it doesn't matter why it's there it is there but uh esg is is a part of it but it will it will get it will get insane and it's because the banks control the transactions and i don't i mean the 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 money changers we should yeah. say mastercard visa uh, to a lesser extent, American Express, um, but predominantly MasterCard and Visa. And it, it's all of your money is under their same system. If you want to participate, uh, people don't know this. Uh, the, so the bank banks have an ACH transfer system, the automatic clearinghouse. It's how banks send money to each other overnight uh, every single day. And uh, it's great. It, it's, it's why you can now cash a check immediately and your check clears your bank the next day or whatever. Um, the automated clearinghouse. If you want to join the automated clearinghouse, there's a list of rules of social rules that is created by the 10 bank member committee of the automated clearinghouse. Um, so if you want to have access to change money overnight as a bank, which you have to have because that's how you comply with your federal deposit requirements, you're, uh, you have to have 20% assets on hand at any given time. The banks do overnight lending through it. So you have to be a part of that system to succeed as a bank right now. Uh, with federal regulation. And to be part of that system, you have to agree to the code of conduct that is set forth by these banks. And uh, some of the bigger ones are MasterCard and Visa. Yeah. So yes, we have to make everything. We have <laughs> to start. Scratch. Yeah. Over. 
Have you, uh, have you ever read the book, The Handmaid's Tale, Margaret Atwood? I have not. So it's, it's actually a great read. I recommend it to everyone. It was, it was my favorite book for decades. I still love it. I just recently reread it. It's don't let the, the woke Showtime show uh, prevent you from checking it out. It, it's a, it's a really, I think, a chilling dystopian novel. And at the beginning, there's this very relevant scene when things start to fall apart. She goes to the grocery store. She tries mm -hmm. to use her card to buy something. Oh, you, you don't have any money in your account. It's all been taken out. You can't use this card. You can't purchase. And it's such a chilling thing because you'd never think that could happen in real life. And yeah. I'm with you. I don't think it's that far out. We've already seen signs. That we've already seen them targeting, um, much like they targeted people for censorship. They start with cases and people that they've they can call extremists or they can point to and say like when they when they took Alex Jones off of every platform yep i had i had friends who are liberals who they're like well he's still on twitter is before he had been taken off twitter and they're like passing out online that you know sign this petition to get him off of twitter too and i'm like aren't you a liberal like what do you <laughs> <laughs> that's going to come and bite us in the ass. Like, what are you, like, it's a, yeah. yeah, they start with Alex Jones, but they're not going to stop with him. And they'll do the, the banks are going to do the same thing. Absolutely. Uh, and they, they, you know, it's, it's precipitated down uh, to what, like Lauren Southern uh, yeah. has trouble banking. Um, Martina Marcota has trouble banking. Oh, um, and it's like this, uh, it, Nick Fuentes uh, purportedly is, is on a no fly list. And, you know, like I don't have any love for Nick Fuentes particularly um, not as certainly not as much as love that he has for cat boys. But that being said, uh, you know, whatever, that doesn't mean he shouldn't be able to participate in banking or, or fly. He's not a danger uh, to like, <laughs> what's he going to do on a plane? Plus um, it's the precedent. It says it's not about him. Yeah, it's exactly. like when they, when they kick Trump off Twitter, I'm like, I, it's not, a, it's not about it being Trump. It's if they can kick a president off of this platform, imagine the power, like the, it's just, it, there's anyway, yeah. <laughs> I, no, I, I, I lose the ability to speak sometimes because I'm like, I don't understand how you don't see how this isn't about one person. It's, it's a president on the exit today. Mm -hmm. In the next probably four to six years, we'll see, um, we'll see minor candidates running for election kicked off uh during their election season i mean i think marjorie taylor green was removed from twitter if i'm not mistaken or something like that i don't, I don't know if I that she was but uh but i'm talking about candidates in in running for election or re-election uh first it's going to be uh, challenging candidates and then eventually it will be incumbent candidates major incumbent candidates will be removed and once that happens that's when the politicians will all I'll look uh, and go, oh, wait, maybe this is a problem. And then it'll be too late at that point because we'll have accepted it and uh, and there won't be any changing it. So um, that's that's the terrifying thing, because imagine when your when your choices in uh, politician are curated by Twitter. Yeah, that's uh, that's it's coming. <laughs> it's yeah. it's accelerating constantly. So I. I hate it, but yeah, the, the parallel economy is, um, you know, is, is a great idea. This, you have to build a system that is insulated and immune to that. Uh, pirate, can you put up something? Thank you. Uh, rackets. This is from JDA. 
You should do a legal Zoom seminars on Kyle or JD. Why let Bronca corner the market on the seminars? <laughs> he does those for free. <laughs> he can he can have the free market all he wants. <laughs> I will I will uh, do stuff. No, I I don't know. Um, I you know doing doing seminars. I, I I'm not sure what that form that would take. Uh, but I. I I don't, I don't know what people want to do, but my time right now is, uh, you know, I don't have much extra because I, I put, well, I, I put all of it into streaming as much as possible. Um, and cause I, one, I enjoy it, but two, you know, it, it feeds the family and, uh, it helps growth and it's an investment in, in my channel as well. So it's, but that's like every, every moment I have, I'm pretty much streaming or guesting or, or doing something. So, mm -hmm. Hi, Mandy. Uh, Mandy says, Privet, carry Russian bot. I don't know how to say that, Mandy, because I'm not a Russian bot. Uh, hey, Nick, how you doing? Thanks. Pretty good. Pretty good, Mandy. How are you? One last idiot says, Nick, sorry to disappoint you here. Back in the 1990s, public schools did not allow homeschoolers to even do extracurricular activities with public school kids. Things have gotten way better now. It's not a disappointment to me. I know. I, I mentioned that it's it's different from 30 years ago because people were fighting like have fought the fight they have done that um there were one of the leading supreme the, the supreme court case i believe that uh, makes homeschooling a right in america comes out of minnesota um and it was uh you know it, it was a case where the government tried to um use truancy laws to force kids into school against their parents wishes and then um, the, the homeschool legal defense association or, or yeah, the HSLDA, I believe they, uh, they funded the case and, and it wasn't, it was in the eighties. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, um, that this was allowed. So you don't have to, you're not disappointing me. I, I know it's much better. Uh, it, and it will continue to get better as more money floods in and more people make the choice to, to do it. And it's less stigmatized, but it's stigmatized by, the public school system. Um, they, they teach, they frankly teach and encourage kids to look down on homeschool kids. Uh, the teachers are offended that people would not want to learn from them. It's like, it doesn't have anything to do with you at all. Yeah. But, uh, if you talk to, you know, lots of public school teachers, not all of them, um, lots of public school teachers and, and they're like, Oh, where did your kid go to school? What well, we homeschool? Oh, do you? And they look at you with suspicion as if you are incapable of doing the job that their four-year degree in education somehow makes them more qualified for. It's like, yeah. <laughs> like I've been to more school than you have. <laughs> I had a, a, one of my, my cousin, she has 19 children and she has a TV show called, uh, well, the new one's called Bringing Up Bates. And she homeschools, she homeschooled all 19 of them. Were they the, um, were they like the, were they friends with the Duggars? Yes. They got the, they got their spinoff show from that first. Yeah. I, show. Okay. I'm, I'm not like, not that I've watched them, but I'm, I'm familiar with them. My in-laws used to watch the, the, you know, 18 and counting or whatever all the time. Yeah. And so I've, I've seen that family. Yeah. Well, they, this is how far I've moved on the issue is, you know, back when I used to be very anti-Christian, I was in that social justice world. I was, I wasn't, I was agnostic, but I, I really had this prejudice against, against Christians, kind of an inoculation against Christianity. 
And I really looked down my nose at her and, and thought, um, and she might be one of the families you're talking about where people say, oh, well, they are legitimately weird because they've self-selected out of society and they have these <laughs> strong religious beliefs, right? Yeah. Um, and, and I thought, you know, I thought she was doing them a disservice. But now I'm in this place where I remember she's brilliant. She's she's a bit older than me. Um, she was a biology major. And those kids have turned out better than a lot of kids that I know. <laughs> and so I'm kind of like, maybe I was entirely wrong about her. And she's done them a great service. And I've I'm just uh, looking at all the reasons why people homeschool now in a different light. Like, uh you know, who am I to judge about? Well, that's, these are your religious beliefs. And and I share a lot of those beliefs with her now. And that is your right as a parent to bring your kid up with your belief system. And if you don't, by the way, I used to think you could, when I was on the left, it was like, well, you can, you can raise your kid without any beliefs. Right. But that's yeah. not true. <laughs> the, the school system will give them a new belief system. I think they're going to instill them with something if you don't. Yes, they, they absolutely will. Um, and, uh, the, the, I saw this the other day. It was, um, what was the discussion? It was, uh, gosh, I, I don't even remember what the subject was, but basically it was that, um, the parents might instill their, or, oh, no, it was, it was on the Florida don't say gay bill. That's what the discussion was about. And someone said to, to be fair, parents also indoctrinate their kids, you know, and, and, and stuff. And it was like, and I, I pointed out is that a parent indoctrinating their kid is, it is never as offensive as the state indoctrinating the kid the same way. Yeah, it, it is. So if you're, if like, let's say you're a parent and you want to raise a, like a critical race theory, super wokest or whatever, and you, you in, infuse that into the kid. I disagree with that, of course, but that is less offensive than the state doing that to a kid every time, 10 times out of 10 in the same way that if you're a, a parent and you want to raise your kid as a, a right wing Christian fundamentalist and, uh, or whatever, that would be infinitely less offensive than the state raising your kid as a right-wing Christian fundamentalist because the parents do have the right and duty to raise their children. And the idea that that should be taken away from them and given to the state is the, the most it's the most terrifying thing I can think of. Yeah. Um, it's it's how all those novels start. Yes. <laughs> Just yes. Only all of them. And uh and and we need to we need to resist that at at every turn. But let let's let's be honest about something here though. Um, for every success story, uh, especially like the wild success stories of homeschooling, you know, the majority of stories, of course, are going to be uh, just normal, decent results, right? That, that's the, the, the norm is going to be just normal, decent results. But then there, you'll have the really good success stories and there will be really bad uh, failure stories of mm -hmm. homeschooling. I, I know uh, a family that is a complete homeschool failure. Um, they they have eight children. They allowed them to go. They got them through eighth grade and homeschool, but then they didn't allow them to do any more schooling afterwards. They stopped educating them and they did not allow them to, uh, you know, go to public school or private school or anything to finish up an education. They, they stifled it 
because of their desire to control the children. They didn't let them have driver's licenses. They didn't let them have jobs. They didn't let them do anything. There's just all these kids in this house. Well, teenagers in this house. Um, and they're socially stunted and awkward and, and not in like a quirky way in like a yeah. terrifying way. So yeah. there, there is that and uh, that we have to recognize it and not over glorify the results. There are people who will fail, but that's, risk and risk is freedom and liberty. And with, when you go to mitigate risk, you, you eliminate success. Mm -hmm. You, uh, you might mitigate failure, but you, you, you push everything towards the median and we don't, you don't get yes. America by pushing towards the median. That's not what we did. Uh, they, when they talk about like, um, history and, and the, the eight hour workday, for example, which most people appreciate an eight hour workday when they think about what it was like before that. But when you think about though, we, we were built not on an eight hour workday and they still talk about how Americans work more than anyone else. And they don't take enough vacations. They don't take enough breaks and they're not incentivized to take time off. And it's like, well, yeah, but we are also the economic engine of the country uh, or of the world. Like we are the ones doing the work. We're disproportionately profitable per uh, per capita, uh, the the closest country to rival our economic power is the one that has over three times the population, mm -hmm. and that's how they have to do it. And so, um, you know, the, you you don't when you push towards the middle, you eliminate the margins, and so you sure you get rid of some of the downside risk, but you also eliminate your upside gain. And I I prefer to to believe in exceptionalism, and and say that you know the the kids that do fail or the, the parents that do fail at homeschooling um, the, the parents that will have kids that are wildly successful from it uh, and, and able to raise, be raised in their own value system. It far outweighs the risk. Yeah. And we've got to be, we've got to stop being so risk averse on these issues. And letting people point to the exception to the rule and, and cast it as the norm. Because you said corruption is always going to be there. There's always going to be a bad example of, of parenting or of behavior. And uh, I saw some people arguing about the, the, you know, the Florida bill that they're calling the don't say gay bill. I saw someone saying, you know, what if someone tries to use this to get a teacher fired just for being gay? And it's like, well, th that's not the purpose of the bill. It's predominantly not how the bill is going to be used. Uh, right. Might you get one crazy bad apple who tries to use this bill as a cudgel to do that? And maybe is that the is that the norm? No, that's not what the bill yeah. is about. And like, you can already do that. Like you can already try and sue a teacher for teaching this stuff. You didn't need the bill to sue a teacher for it. Um, you can okay. sue someone for anything. You can you can make their life miserable for anything. You can create social campaigns about anything. You can uh, write complaints to the school board already. You can do all of these things that people are saying will happen from this bill. There, I mean, doesn't add some cause of action uh, on the on the it it clarifies. I I shouldn't say that. I, I guess it clarifies a cause of action, but that is only because uh, they they wanted to clarify one. It doesn't prevent a lawyer from coming up with one. Um, already. So the, this, this idea that it will spark this rash of lawsuits is silly. Um, but, but I, one thing I've been talking about a lot 
with that don't say gay bill and i think this is important is that i the one of the clarion calls of the movement of the anti-bill is uh academic freedom and i'm going to put forth the controversial take maybe that as a public school teacher you don't and should not have academic freedom at all because you're an agent of the state. You are yes. not an independent agent. And so therefore your academic uh, rigor is limited to what the state uh, and the, the, the bosses of the state, the voting populace decide it should be. And, and you should not be allowed outside of that structure. If you don't, if you want academic freedom, go to private school. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's that's that but uh, academic freedom has has no place within a state controlled system in my opinion okay. i think that's great pirate are there any more that we missed uh mandy did you have homework from porn class i did <laughs> sorry yeah really this is, uh, yeah Tell me about had, it. oh my gosh well i was taking all kinds of uh these these critical theory classes as part of my women's studies minor so there was the one that was uh we were watching porn through and analyzing it through the queer theory and feminist theory and we also did a whole section on yeah we would have to watch we watched the porn in the class we'd also have to watch at home then write these papers about the heterosexual gaze and how it was being assumed and how that was homophobic because they're assuming the viewer is straight and um I learned about oh, the heterosexual gaze, G-A-Z-E. G-A-Z-E. I yeah. thought you were talking about the heterosexual gaze like the- Oh, uh, no. <laughs> because like lots of uh, lots of male porn and female porn stars have to do same-sex scenes when they might right. not really be same-sex oriented, or they end up doing uh, heterosexual scenes when they might not be heterosexual. Like that's, that's just kind of part of it. Part of I their think job. Yeah. And I think no, um, this was Peter about, North has talked about it a lot, for example. Yeah. No, this was more about interrogating the assumptions in film, in the porn, and who's watching and what do they like, that kind of thing. Finding the, <laughs> find, finding the sexism, finding the racism, finding the homophobia. Right. Yeah. It's funny because it's like, well, I think those, I think those assumptions are data driven. <laughs> <laughs> watching the primary <laughs> amount of pornography. <laughs> there seem to be a lot of straight men. Why are you assuming that straight men watch this? <laughs> yeah, it's weird. I don't know. Because <laughs> uh, all my buddies can can name them. Um, no. <laughs> Nick, what brand of ear monitors did you purchase? This is from OSPDY. Uh, okay, I have. I have two ear. Uh, these ones I'm currently using are sure 535s. Um, they're very nice. They are not custom uh, molded or anything. They're just, they're nice in-ear monitors that are pretty loud. Uh, and I like them. Um, the other ones I bought, which I, I got ear molds for, and I was going to send them in because they're custom. Um, but I started wearing these and they made my ear canals bigger. So I have to redo my ear molds <laughs> so, uh. and I need time to do it. But they're, they're 64 audio uh, A18Ss. They cost a whole lot. Uh, so don't, don't shame me. It was a tax write-off. Um, and I was looking to dump money at the end of last year because nice. the, uh, the Rittenhouse streams were very, very profitable and I needed to <laughs> get rid of some income very fast. Nice. Eventually I'll get some fancy earbuds. I think these were like a, a free giveaway from Snapple or something. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, working my way up. Let's see. Kent. Kent says uh, Garcia Guitar String Fund. Oh, thank you, sir. 
uh, he's referencing my my husband Anthony Garcia has a new song out, and it's Ooh. really good. I played it on a previous show. Go listen to it. It's called Devil in My Heart. Uh, congrats on the growth of your channel. Thanks, Kent. Um, Zodiac Thriller. <laughs> That's a great name. The Christian right was entirely correct about Harry Potter. Its fan base has proven it is demonic in nature. <laughs> <laughs> true. It's true. When the left and the right overlap, that that uh, Venn diagram of where they overlap, and it, it's like Harry Potter is in the middle. Uh, <laughs> yes. This is this is the cultural battlefield <laughs> that, that none of us saw coming. Right. Uh, Mandy, another important question for Carrie: Cut sandwiches in half or uncut sandwiches eaten whole? Oh, triangles. That's the way. The church way. Okay. Mm. Okay. Know. All right. I don't know why. What do you, how do you cut them? Who, who cuts the sandwich? You just pick it up and eat it. <laughs> don't you have hands? <laughs> uh, I, I honestly, I don't, I can't remember the last time I made a sandwich. So I'm not sure what I would do. <laughs> I, I'm, I have sandwich tism. <laughs> I, I will look, I will sit and complain about sandwiches and people improperly making them for hours if you let me. So oh, that's a whole nother show. The sandwich channel. Um, Joel, Joel says, Carrie asked Nick who Melania is. Great show, people. And Melania, she's the blade of McKella. And she's a cold, ruthless bitch. And I hate her and I hope she dies. Uh, and I will be the one to kill her. Wow. Okay. Uh, I'll ask about that later. Sarah. Okay. <laughs> Sarah says, what impact do you think Musk is going to have on this push for a social credit system? Uh... Musk is an unknown entity um, and the, the impact he could have is, is phenomenal. I, I don't know that he will. Um, I, Musk, uh, you know, talks about free speech and stuff like that, but we have no idea what he's actually like if he were to be in control of one of these companies. If, if he's uh, the way that he spoke about in his Ted interview, um, it, it could be great. It could be great. Literally, basically, the extreme margins of of speech, unlawful speech, are disallowed, um, but everything else is allowed. That's, in my opinion, what it should be. And then open sourcing any of the algorithms and being transparent in the reasons for uh, for disciplinary actions on accounts or moderation actions on accounts. If he does those things, I mean that that should be a social media bill of rights, in my opinion. Is that uh, there should be only um, all legal speech should be allowed on the platform. Hate speech is not real, by the way. There is no, there's no such thing. Hate speech is a subjective approach to uh, speech, and it, hate speech literally means speech that I disagree with at a particular time. Um, but, uh, but yeah. So if if we could get all legal speech being allowed on platforms, regardless of if it's hateful or offensive or not, um, all. Uh, all algorithmic decisions being open source so that programmers can independently review them and comment on them. And then finally, uh, that uh, the transparency in, in disciplinary action. I mean, all of those things. Because if they have to be transparent about the disciplinary action and they lie about it, then they are subject to a defamation suit. And I think that's really, really critically important that, uh, that they be forced to disclose their reasoning. Yeah. Um, uh, it's sort, yeah, 
it's sort of what you were talking about before with the court system being transparent and being in the open. And it actually made me think of the way that my uh, my Bitcoin friend first described Bitcoin to me. He said, it's all taking place in that town square, every transaction. So, and, and I might be getting this wrong. This is what I remember him describing it as is, is this transparent system where where every transaction is verified by all the eyes in this sort of panopticon of the town square. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, uh, it, it, I, I always hesitate to say yeah to anything on Bitcoin cause I barely understand it, but that, uh, that is, that is there. The, the blockchain is open. It's, it's a registry. You can follow it. Um, and, and it has a lot of benefits in that way. It also has some pitfalls for, uh, privacy because if you purchase something, right, like <laughs> they can see the, where the money comes from. Um, the really scary thing is if they can track a a Bitcoin back to a source all the way, like eventually maybe you bought the Confederate flag years ago, right? Like you bought, Mm -hmm. you paid this person who paid that person who paid this person, you created a network. I'm, I'm talking about the scary ways they could use the Bitcoin registry or the blockchain registry to, uh, to Uh, track purchases back to the source of the bigotry and some stupid, cause see, they're crazy. So we have to think yeah. crazy, but, There's uh, pass. but yeah, the openness and transparency is genu- generally good for many, many things. And so I, I but yeah, uh, it, we need to model it that way for sure. Cool. Uh, the front porch conservative. Hello, sir. He always has a nice hat in his picture. Carrie, keep wearing your hats. Stop hat hate. Thanks. <laughs> Doing my part. Uh, radioactive llama pajamas. Hi, Carrie, you're brilliant. Interviewer, great show. Thanks, Nick. I have been sitting here this whole time trying to think of the perfect joke about the unemployed, but I just realized none of them work. I hate you <laughs> so much. <laughs> oh, Adam Coleman's here. Hi, Adam. Uh, Adam is the author of uh, From Black Victim to Black Victor. If you haven't checked out his book, check it out. He says, does DEI actually protect corporations or reduce liability in a discrimination lawsuit? I think it puts them more likely to have discrimination lawsuits. Frankly, I think uh, um, I, I do, I'm not aware of any actual legal shield or liability reduction that exists. Um, if if the discriminator is acting as an agent of the company in the scope of their work, then the company is liable for the discrimination. That's just that's how it always has been, uh, and DEI doesn't change that. It's it's just basic. Uh, imp- uh, agent agency law or employer employee law. Um, so, uh, again, uh, if the decision is, you know, just within the, within the scope of employment and, uh, and is not so far outside the scope of employment as to be independent, then the, the company will always be liable for the decision. Um, that's, that's the, the, the risk of management structures. So. Have you seen those um, studies that say that, a company is more likely to have problems with sexual harassment after they've been through sexual harassment training. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it, it, it makes logical sense. I haven't seen the study, but it makes logical sense. You educate people on what sexual harassment is, and then uh, they will, they will start finding it. It's like when you buy a red car and you notice how many red cars are on the road, right? It's that uh, mm-hmm. I don't remember what the psychological condition is, 
Um, but, but you, you have a thing as primacy in your brain and then you start seeing it everywhere and you become Anita Sarkeesian. Everything is racist. Everything is sexist. And we have to call it out all the time. Well, then you're going to get more and more of it for sure. I would just fire everybody who ever mentioned anything about sexual harassment ever. (laughs) (laughs) Sexual (laughs) harassment. Fired. I don't care who did it. You're fired. Fired. Stop it. (laughs) <laughs> that's why i don't own a company other than my, my own which is just me <laughs> just you fired doc savage hello doc savage he says how about we refer to parental rights bill and education by its name instead of the smear you know what thank you for for saying that because i've gotten so used to the smear as the name that i'd even forgotten the the real name of it the parental rights bill thank you but i want it to be the don't say gay bill why <laughs> 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 because I want I want people more mad that it got passed. Like, I want I want to see them suffer through the passage of this bill. That's why. <laughs> they're so good at naming things, uh the Orwellian language. I mean, oh yeah. There was a book uh called that I've mentioned before. I think everyone should read it. It I read it when I was a real lefty, like like super social justice lefty. It's called Don't Think of an Elephant. It's by this uh, linguist. And he, in, in the book, he's uh, George Lakoff, that's his name. He's trying to explain to people on the left why it is that people on the right could hear a fact that, that, that they don't agree with, hear a fact and discard it if it doesn't align with their belief system. And sure. he does a good job of explaining like psychologically what's happening. And he sort of talks about how people on the right have, you know, they have their belief system and it's sort of like a house and they would have to raise their whole house to the ground to accept a new fact, like a a window that doesn't fit with their architecture of their belief system. Right. So they get rid of the fact it's a great analogy, but the thing is he missed the fact that it, it doesn't it left or the right both do this. All all people do this. And so Mm -hmm. now in, in that book, he talked about how, um, the right wingers at the time, he said, were really good at naming things and having it aligned with their belief system, with their house of beliefs. So they would name things "No Child Left Behind." Right. They would frame it that way. So who's going to oppose? Who's going to be like, "I'm for leaving a child behind. Let's leave. Let's leave children behind." And so the the but the left does that now. Like they're brilliant at it. Yeah, it's like. If if you disagree with this bill, you hate children act. Yes. <laughs> like so, yes. So amazing. No, it's uh it's so the left can't meme, but at the same time they can, right? And yeah. and that's how they do it, but they do it through uh controlled, not even controlled. They they get these explosive mimetic brandings. Um, but I think it, it's just it's just the the effect of crowdsourcing, right? Like a whole bunch of people talk about this bill and then suddenly someone says the don't say gay bill and they go, yes, that's the one. And then immediately it it takes off. Black Lives um, Matter. Somebody yeah, said. Black Lives Matter, Me Too, all of this stuff. Uh, and it, it happens both sides. I just think it's, I think it's the, the, the benefit of social communication is that you, um, once the, once the moniker comes out, the mob, the mob is able to adopt it immediately and broadly. 
um, we're just so fast now that you don't have to pay someone to research what market research, what the good branding is because the good branding happens organically, but you can never tell where it's going to come from, right? Because it's the, whoever coined it, the don't say gay bill, it's probably the best idea they'll have in their entire life. <laughs> like in all honesty, when you, when you really yeah. get down to it and it's like, and that's what you use it on. You could have like come up with a new name for cat litter and made a trillion dollars, but instead uh, you, you got this and they're probably very happy with that, but that's I just, I imagine a comedy sketch of that person sort of like you were talking about earlier, people who are stuck in high school, reliving all the high school stuff. That person in 30 years is like, I coined, don't say gay bill. <laughs> 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 they're telling the grandkids uh, that or, or like they're getting brought around on a speaking <laughs> tour, making like $12 an appearance at some yeah. college. <laughs> Matt oh. Deckard. Hey, Matt says, remember the middle class. What an odd concept. It's a strange one. Joel, after seeing Disney and Netflix take some L's on account of the woke nonsense, do you think the gaming industry will avoid the woke trap? Not a chance. No, no, <laughs> nope. no. No, the the one thing that Ripa Ripa's talking about is parallel economy, and the way he's contributing to it is the Ripaverse uh, comic book universe, which is great, uh, and and I I think it's phenomenal. I think it's different than Comicsgate in in a cool way because it it embraces some of the traditional models of putting you know having a book in hand when you exchange money for it um, and and stuff like that. So I think that's. Fantastic. But uh, what what he's doing and what Comicsgate have been doing, um, what YouTubers have been doing uh, in, in some extent is we're creating alternatives to the existing um, industries. And uh, as that becomes easier and easier, that's where that's where freedom will go is just towards independence. And we're seeing it in the the independent game the indie game revolution that that's become possible and prominent because of things like steam and good old games the ability for people to have instant access to distribute their personal works and the tools to make really high quality things um, at the amateur level is allowing a, a whole new market that that will be the anti-woke market but yes. it will push it will push towards triple a titles being predominant from the industry and those triple a titles will be polished and processed and wildly expensive in the same way that a marvel movie is polished and processed and wildly expensive marketed to hell and and the idea is to make more than they put in that's what that will be that will happen with the movie industry too as uh as the the cost of creating cinema not just a video, but cinema becomes more and more accessible and smaller independent crews start doing this stuff with cameras that rival the, the studios for uh, accessible costs and, and uh, lighting and sound effects that rival studios at accessible costs and expertise being democratized as more people come out of colleges and can't get into these major industries. There will be just a, a pool of people for independent uh, sources. I mean, hell there are hobbyists out there who rival Hollywood affects people. And so as that continues to happen and continues to grow, uh, we'll, we'll start see to, to see it, this parallel economy build up and that's the independent stuff. And that's, that's where we'll all be going for entertainment. I mean, we, you may go I, see one movie a year and it's a Mar it, it's a Marvel movie or something akin to it. 
uh, in the theater because it's it's the one thing you still like. Um, but everything else you'll be watching will be independent. And for yeah. many people, for me, it already is. I mean, I, I almost exclusively watch YouTube for entertainment. Same. I was going to ask you, where do you think things are headed? But it sounds like you kind of answered that. Uh, <laughs> three creators, uh, Greg Wilson, who's my semi-regular Monday co-host, says, if Tiger dropped a grumpy in your bed, how would you feel about the trunk of a Honda Civic? I won't have you defaming Tiger. Tiger's my dog. Greg has a thing about <laughs> <laughs> it just started as it because you know everybody loves baby pictures and dog pictures it just yeah. started as an inside joke where whenever i'd post a picture of my dog he would say oh disgusting and then people would think he was serious and they would pile on him <laughs> <laughs> so now he's just always teasing him um okay i think last one i think we're done with these super chats andrew thank you sir thank you everybody who gave a super chat today says is unbreaded the good word or slightly crazy Yes. <laughs> yes, both and. Both and. <laughs> I heard it about is. unbreaded. I had to do some research on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. uh it's it's very it's very fun. Well, <laughs> I'm uh, a big fan. I've got I've got one more kind of feel good. Well, actually, this is just a silly question. Earlier when you were talking about Christianity kind of was on the cultural decline in the 80s and 90s and all these puritanical authoritarian kind of right-wing Christians were on the downslope. Uh, you made me, have you seen the, the eyes of Tammy Faye? It's a new um, docu-series. It's out. No, it's, it's about Tammy Faye Baker or about something. Tammy Faye Baker. I, I have not. Plain. It's great. I would highly recommend it. Okay. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll keep, where is it? What's it on? Do I don't know? know. I just watched it on the airplane. So, okay. but it, uh, somebody in the chat, tell me the actress who plays her. It's a famous actress. But I forget her name. She did an excellent job and, and really I sort of gave me a window into what was happening there when I was too young to kind of realize a lot of the politics involved with the way that, that some of the, the televangelists sort of left them out, that couple out to dry, or at least it's portrayed that way in the movie. Sure. Um, uh, Jessica Chastain. Jessica Chastain. Yes. She did an excellent job. Okay, I'll have to, yeah, I'll have to check it out. That's good. And so here's my final question. Uh, Matt Deckard interrupted, though. The pro-child <laughs> castration bill didn't catch on. <laughs> <laughs> no, not catchy. <laughs> um, Doesn't have that, that uh, ring to it. Yeah. So with all the crazy stuff going on in the world and where we're at culturally and some of the stuff we talked about, what is giving you joy lately Something. oh man uh <laughs> um it's it's honestly just making stupid videos on youtube and doing live streams i uh it's it's the best job on the planet and um and people participate and enjoy it it's when i when i went to school i wanted to tell stories so my at the time what i thought was i will go write movies and books so literature and creative writing major. And uh, I, I just wanted to tell stories and, and entertain people. But, uh, you know, you live in Minnesota. And what are you going to really do in, in the early 2000s? You're going to, I guess you're going to go move to LA and uh, starve like everybody else or go to New York or something like that. And so I, I didn't know where that would go. Uh, thank God uh, I met my wife in college and stayed uh, where I was. And we started a family and it kept me away from those hell holes. Mm. And 
and then um you know i i had to work i just had to work to get uh to feed to feed us and to house us and so i had to do banking stuff because that's what i fell into by accident just getting a summer job in a bank and then banking after college and then into the back end of banking and i thought i would uh, climb the uh sort of the corporate ladder at Thrivent was the idea and to, to, you know, move up into some sort of management position um, or go into risk assessment or something. And then that uh, we moved out to the country and uh, that kind of stifled any sort of advancement opportunities there. But um, I was working uh, tele telecommuting and then they said no more telecommuting for your position. They're about to get audited by the uh, the SEC and they and FINRA, and they really didn't want to have a bunch of private information that I had on my computer out of the building. And they said, you can come back and work in the office. And I said, no. <laughs> so then, uh, you know, then I went to law school and these were all just like things kind of uh, getting getting through. I went to law school because it's like you can be a lawyer anywhere. Uh, and and so that was fine. But then I, I got this opportunity on YouTube and I and now I get to tell stories and and talk to people every single day and uh, couldn't be happier with it. So that I don't watch a bunch of stuff. Uh, I don't I don't have time to read. I wish I did. I have tons of books that I'm way behind on. Um, but I uh, I just I enjoyed doing YouTube too much. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, you know what we had to do? We had to create a book club. That's how, that's the only way I can make sure I hold myself accountable to do one book a month. Cause then it's like, well, you got to host a show about it. So you better, <laughs> you better start yeah. reading, but it is, it is hard. And uh, I want to do more of it because it, you know, with all the, the, these devices, everything, it's like our attention span is getting shorter and Short. shorter. And yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I have, I've, uh, I, I'm, I'm a simp for Warhammer 40 K that's what like all those books are. And, uh, but I have the, I have so many of those to read probably a hundred now that I'm behind. And then I have, uh, like I have James O'Keefe's book that I really want to read through. Um, and it, <laughs> I've been trying to like convince myself to sit down, but then I'm like, or I could go just do live stream. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe one day live streams will just be reading books that you want to read. Like, yeah. so that you make sure you get it in. You're like, today we're reading chapter three. Uh, so, but my, my dad does, he volunteers at an animal shelter and uh, his job at the shelter is he reads to the dogs. They have volunteers come in and read to the dogs so they hear a human voice. And uh, that would be a great job to make sure you get your reading in, except he reads children's books, which doesn't make sense. It's like, they don't know what you're saying, dogs. You could read the books yeah. that you want to read. But, yeah, read him yeah. something great. Oh my gosh. Read him James O'Keefe's book. Yeah, there you go. It I I've started it. It's it's fascinating. Uh it's it's interesting. I, I'd love to talk to him sometime, but um cuz I think what he's doing is I mean, he's the he's the parallel media, right? Like yeah. he's doing investigative journalism the way it kind of people envision it's done. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, okay. And he, he's doing it to his own uh, it, to his own benefit and detriment simultaneously. And that's, that's how independence works, I think. Yeah. Well, thank you, Nick, so much for hanging out with me here today, for hanging out with all of us. Uh, enjoyed learning more about you. I tell people where they can find you if they're not familiar. Well, you can find me on YouTube at uh, Ricada Law 
all all one word. If you if you go to your YouTube search bar and type in R E K, you'll find it. Uh, it'll pop up, which is that's kind of a fun proud achievement. Um, but uh, the the other place you can find me if you want to get a little bit more intimate is on my locals ricadalaw.locals.com. Uh, it's not a dating site. It's like a Patreon uh, type thing, but it's free to join. Um, I encourage people to go there because YouTube is uh, very bad at sending out notifications for things, but Locals is quite good at it. So whenever I go on a show uh, or do my own show, I try to post on Locals because that notification goes out to pretty much everyone. So um, you can find me at either of those places. You can also find me dying over and over in Elden Ring on Twitch really, really late at night uh, at, at twitch.tv forward slash Ricada Law as well. Oh, and on Twitter, I'm Ricada Media because my Ricada Law account got banned. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Ricada Media. Well, thank you very much. Uh, just an announcement. If you guys are in Texas, this weekend is the Better Discourse Conference. I'm going to be leaving here to head to Fort Worth right now. And if you're in Texas or if you want to fly in last minute, uh, there's speakers like James Lindsay, uh, Mike Harlow is hosting, Lawrence Southern, uh, Blair White. Uh, see you guys there if you're coming. And if you're not, uh, I think it is going to be streamed at the betterdiscourseevent.com. So thank you very much, Nick. My pleasure. I'm going to roll this up the video now. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for having me on here. <laughs> Bye. Bye.